Hi, this is Steve. As most of you know, the origin of the cinephiles is simple. Just a bunch of friends who love talking about movies. And one of my favorite people to talk movies with is animator and actor Stephen B. Jones. In fact, he and I have been talking about movies since high school. When we first asked Steve to be a guest on the show, he sent us a list of over 100 movies. It took a while, but we finally decided on Sidney Pollock's 1975 thriller, Three Days of the Condor. Steve immediately started doing his research, and because of some scheduling problems, that research stretched on and on. By the time we got around to recording our episode, he had watched every film Sidney Pollock had ever made unquestionably the act of a true cinephile. So that's Three Days of the Condor with Sidney Pollock expert Stephen B. Jones this Friday on The Cinephiles. This is a major. This is Joe Turner. Listen, identification. What? Identification. Uh, my name is Turner. I work for you. Now listen. Identify yourself. Uh, well, I don't. What is your designation? Uh, Condor. Section 9, Department 17. The section's been hit. What level? What level? Level of damage. Everybody. Dr. Lapp, Janice, Ray, Harold. Harold was in the, uh, uh... Are you in a company line? No, no, I'm in a phone booth. I'm, I'm just a block away. I'm in the street. You're in violation of secure communication procedures, Condor. Listen, you son of a bitch. I'm telling you, I came back with lunch and it was raining and the whole house was murdered. Everybody is dead. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone again. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host of numerous shows, and occasionally an actor uh, on camera. And today we're really, really happy. Well, yes. I'm particularly really happy because I get to welcome one of my oldest friends in the world. I've known him for 30 years. We met in high school. Wow. Uh, he is an actor, a storyboard artist, a character designer, has worked in animation for 20 years at 20, this point. 20 years this year. 20 years. Started in comic books, was transferred over to animation, and I, I, we talked about the list of shows to mention, and it goes on and on and on, yeah. including Superman, the animated series, Batman Beyond, Teen Titans, Justice League Unlimited, King of the Hill, Brave and the Bold, Transformers, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, but I'm tired of listing your credits. <laughs> so I'm really, really happy to welcome to the Cinephiles, Steve Jones. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Is that your professional name, Steve Jones or Steven Jones? What's your professional name? I get... You know, this is the trouble. Like, with what being, do the checks say when they come? It's like, well, if you want to find me online, which I'm sure you do, <laughs> it's um, it's Stephen B. Jones. There it is. Um, and I think that's mostly what I go by. But okay. I think you know, I've been around long enough. I feel like I've gone by all the different versions. You can like Stephen Jones, Stephen right. B. Jones, Steve Jones. Have you ever wanted to buy S. B. Jones? Probably at S. one Jones. point there was even like a Steve. Bo you know, it's gotten weird. You know, in there <laughs> when you have such a boring name, you end up trying to jazz it up. <laughs> Look, for, Steve is not boring. No, yeah, 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 John, Steve John Steven Roca, Steven Morris. Steve's in a way. Three Steve Migos. And here's a question I wanted to ask you because uh, you start, you know, you, you're also an actor, and I wanted to know what influence does, does your acting background have any effect on storyboarding and character design and how mm. you approach that process? Absolutely. I mean, I think, right, I studied acting in. I studied acting in I have a BA in acting. Mm. Um, God bless it. That's and, one of uh, those really valuable degrees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Yes. laughs> when you're at Starbucks, it's they, it's great. But I, I think it 
it's a huge i mean a lot of animators uh the nine old men and different stuff have talked about like it's really acting with a pencil or something like that so i think it's one of those things that at the time i was studying acting i didn't really see how it was affecting my drawing but then as all the years have gone on i've you know i think there's definitely guys that are way way better at like action than me you know in within the realm of storyboarding you know guys that are just like great at staging explosions and karate fights and all that kind of stuff and i feel like if i have a strength i'm always trying to improve in that area but i feel like a place that i feel very strong in my storyboarding is in my performances mm. you know and just in the moment to moment beat to beat stuff of what are people thinking about you know like and and making those transitions cutting back and forth between actors like i feel like yeah, I start kind of acting when I'm, pl- when I, you know, when I'm playing the characters, when I'm drawing the characters. Well, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because one of the things I know that you do all the time when you're drawing is watching movies. And, yeah. and, and a great movie for watching performance and for walking, watching action is what we're going to talk about today, which was your idea, Three Days of the Condor, Cindy Pollock, Robert Redford. That's one of the best transitions I've ever heard Steve do. <laughs> They're I not mean, always very smooth. Amazing. <laughs> he, just, he just flipped that bat. He's just taking a, a leisurely stroller on the bases now. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm a professional podcaster. <laughs> and by are. professional, I mean that I don't get paid. <laughs> um, yep, that's a professional <laughs> podcaster. Professional right. podcaster. That's right. Um, uh, and, and, and it was funny. When you, we first started talking to you about doing a movie, the first thing you did was send me a list of 100-plus movies. Yes. Yeah, sorry um, about that. All, all excellent ones. And then kind of narrowed it down to three days of a condor because it was a while ago it seems to me you kind of went down a Sidney Pollock wormhole I did a little bit because I think I have a really unholy love for this movie I think on just a million different levels but it's interesting because I don't think you guys have talked about Pollock yet and he's one of those interesting directors that you know he's not Kubrick mm. you know what I mean like he's right. not he's not spoken of in reverential tones yeah as like this auteur film director, but he has this amazing track record and he's made some, you know, some of my favorite films. I mean, Tootsie is an incredible film, I think on just like a million different levels and stuff. And it was, so it was fun going down the Pollock wormhole because I knew a little bit, but I'm like, oh, seven movies with Robert Redford. Like that's a real love affair, you know, between those two guys. Well, if you're going to fall in love with a guy, Robert Redford's so dreamy. Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, I got a little bit of a man crush on Robert Redford in 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 especially in this movie. I think not in Jeremiah Johnson. Well, he looks great in Jeremiah Johnson, yeah. but he's thirty nine, I think, when he makes yeah. this movie. So oh, he's wow. at the he's he's not the kid that he was in Sundance, Butch and Sundance, right. you know, and. You know, like, man, he got hammered in, like, Havana. You know, that was all they would talk about in yeah. 1990 was, like, Robert's not looking good anymore, you know? Leathery. And, and out of Africa, I realized as I rewatched all these films, like, that's his last moment out. Like, he looks, it's, you know, he and Brad Pitt's career mm-hmm. have been combined a lot. And seeing Robert Redford in Out of Africa, it's, imagine, it's amazing how much he looks like Brad Pitt in Allied. Like, Ooh. you know... Brad Pitt at fifty and Robert Redford at fifty—they're mm. they're really kind of passing each other on the freeway that's there. A good again, correlation, you know. And I think they did Spy Game together. They did. Oh, I, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. and he direct he directed Brad in oh, A River oh, Runs River Through River. It. Yeah, so that's right. That's right. There, I mean, that's and that was something else. I've in this talking, looking into these guys, it's amazing yeah. to just see all these interesting interconnections. You know. Well, more. this is a great point you bring up about Pollock because there are a number of directors that have done like numerous films, but they don't get spoken about like. Kurosawa or Wells and Wells you can argue has done considerably way less films right. than and, Pollock has and, and, with and diminishing uneven, levels of quality know, yeah exactly yeah. well and the thing is like Pollock is one of these guys who's like the working man's director yeah. is that he's going to go out he's craft his 
top. Right. And he's going to go out. And he's going to do the job. And he's going to go on to the next film. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to, you know, I kind of like Ron Howard is kind of this kind of guy. Right. And I like these guys. Yep. Um, I think Ron Howard, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good comparison yeah. because, it, you know, I mean, the difference is, is Ron Howard grew up in Hollywood. Right. You know, but, but I think they both seem to sort of be in love with being Hollywood directors, mm. you know, and, and right. Paula definitely seemed to have this thing where, like, you know, he, he's born in small town, Indiana. You know, he was like, he's like a Midwestern kid, you know, right. and he moves to New York uh, and he studies the first thing that he studied with Sandy Meisner in the, in the early fifties. So one of my acting teachers studied with Sandy Meisner. So I'm right. immediately like, Oh, that's, you know, and he works in New York, and then he already has a knack already because he starts getting to teach at the yeah. neighborhood playhouse. But he's still trying to be an actor, like a lot of like a lot of us do. Yeah. And uh, he gets hired as an acting coach on a John Frankenheimer film mm-hmm. with Burt Lancaster. It's not the Birdman of Alcatraz; it's the one before that. Yeah, he was coaching a bunch of kids, I think. Exactly, yeah. and then like, and so Burt Lancaster like just you got. You got something going on with you. I think you could be a really terrific director. <laughs> Can you are. imagine, by the way, if Burt Lancaster gave me any advice, yeah. I would be like, well, yes, I have. It's like, you should be a fireman. Yes, I, I guess I have to be a fireman now. You, I mean, <laughs> you should well, be a fireman. <laughs> well, and You'd so, be a great fireman. No, Bert, that's a terrific Burt, by the way. Well, thank you. He's a, he's a tough guy, that Lancaster. I read his biography. He's kind of an asshole. At times, like he he, he rode Montgomery Clift into the ground. He definitely uh, seems to have during from here to eternity. He seems to have willed himself yes. into becoming an actor. Well, guys like or that. a star, really, right? You know? And people like that drive people around them crazy because they're driven. They think everyone else has to match their drive, right? So that makes sense. So for him to like grab Pollock up, yeah. you need to be doing this. Then I'm sure Pollock was like, hey, whatever you say, yes, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, no, and and I and I think he was a big part of. He started directing in TV, uh-huh. and then I think you know Pollock had directed two films before he then did direct Burt Lancaster. Right. He directed him in two films, and I feel like that's that's one of the things I definitely discovered is you'll see is that. Pollock is constantly working with the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like he definitely develops relationships, has friendships with people, and he keeps using them and he keeps, you know, keeps coming back. And I, I think I ended up seeing in an interview later that he and Bert just never quite found a pla- place to work together again, but he was always kind of looking for that spot, you know. Uh, the the Burt Lancaster films he directed are very odd. What very you, what, odd. What are films. those? So the first one's this movie called The Scalp Hunters. Oh yeah, the, and, the, oh. It's, yeah. It's a big. I, well, this is I, I think an interesting thing about Pollock is that he starts directing in the '60s, but I feel like he doesn't really find his voice until '69, mm-hmm. when the whole paradigm of directing is shifting to what we would call like these '70s films. Right, you the know? Auteurs, yeah. And I think like, you guys already talked about The Graduate and stuff, and I feel mm-hmm. like Graduate and Bonnie of Clyde, that's when the shift kind of begins. Sure. And in that pocket is when Pollock kind of finds his sweet spot with that they shoot horses, don't they? Yeah, the Jane That's Fonda where one. a bunch yeah. of people get nominations. I think that guy Gig Young won an Oscar nomination mm-hmm. for that movie. He works with Jane Fonda there for the first time. Right. Yeah. Pollock does. But so it felt to me like in those 60 movies that Pollock was just kind of trying to learn how to be a Hollywood director. And so his first one is a Sidney Poitier movie, which is a really interesting film. It's very much like a, like a, not like a courtroom, but it just, it's all on sets and it feels very much like a mid sixties, you know, and then he does his first film with Robert Redford, which is called this property is condemned. It's like, Oh, that's right. It's a Tennessee. It's an adaptation of Tennessee Williams. It's Natalie Wood looking to try to like break out of her star persona and do like a real acting Mm. thing. And I guess she asked for Redford because she'd worked with Redford once before. And then Redford, got Pollock the job because he's like, well, I know Sydney. 
which I guess we skipped over. So Sidney and Robert Redford, they meet on this movie called War Hunt in 1962. Wow. And they're just actors in it, but they just hit it off and they stay friends. And so literally when Redford can recommend them for a job three years later, he does. And then the third movie that Sidney directs is this movie, The Scalp Hunters. And it's, mm-hmm. it's such a strange mid-60s cinemascope wannabe like it Mm -hmm. feels like all those big westerns of the 50s and the 60s but it also just doesn't quite feel right like it feels like the time is turning on that well that's that mid-60s era but by the time we get to three days of the condor it's 75 10 years later it's 10 years later it clearly has hit his rhythm do do you remember how you first came to this movie it's so funny because you've asked so many people that in this show and and i'm sure with you guys too Usually, there's some sort of great story about when you fall in love with a movie and it has a special place. Right. And I realize the strange thing about this movie is I can't actually remember the first time I saw it. I was talking to another friend about it, and we both realized I remember seeing bits and pieces of it on TV in the late 70s and the 80s, but it wasn't until I think it came out on DVD like 20 years ago mm. that I you know, really feel like I fully discovered and embraced it and have been watching it constantly for 20 years. But I don't have that quintessential first, like, when do you see Star Wars? Right. Did I see Aliens the day that it came, you know, that it came out or mm. whatever? And I think that's tr- maybe it's true of a lot of older movies. You don't always remember exactly well, sure, they're, when you saw They kind it. of exist in the ether and maybe you yeah. see a bit on TV. What about you? Uh, same thing kind of what Steve said. I had seen bits and pieces throughout the years, but I'd never seen the film until maybe February of this year. Maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, because every once in a while, I, we've talked about it on the show, I will go on this run on TCM where I will go like weeks and see ahead of time and go like, what are these, what are films that I have not seen? And then I'll set the DVR to record them so that I know like I'll, I'll be able to watch them when I get to it, you know? And so that was one of those ones that I'd kind of had to make myself watch, <laughs> you know, because those old seventies type of films, once you miss that certain time to watch them, it's really hard to go back because at times they can be somewhat dated, right. but this was incredibly enjoyable because of the acting because of the structure and everything that happened within it. And it challenges you as a viewer. So for it me, does. it definitely kept my attention throughout the whole film. And it was nice to see Redford, who I had seen play these other kind of parts, play something a little more darker and somewhat naive, yet also circumspect as, he, as the film goes on yeah. to see how how uh, what he thought was his world is all of a sudden getting turned around and how he has to grow up quickly uh, in order to survive. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's particularly why I think it's a really fun Redford piece is that, you know, I think Robert Redford is a very good actor, but he is... He is definitely a movie star. Yes. You know, and so... Well, like Pitt. and, and And a lot of times movie stars are not... They're not required to be great actors, for one thing. But sometimes... Trying to be great actors even like messes with their job description. Like people are coming to see them. Yeah. You know, it's like a Tom Hanks. You know, there's a list of Tom Cruise. You know, there's a lot of people that we go see. Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah. and so I think you know Redford's never won an award like Costner too. You know, never won an award for acting. Right. Um, he didn't get an Oscar until he directed. You right. know, and then of course he got a director the first time he directed with Ordinary People. But I think what's fun to me about about Three Days is that. It's him kind of trying to mess with that. Like, he's playing a real geek. And yeah. I think we're, we're so... Now we take for granted geek chic so much that we've, we're 20 years into yeah. it. But, like, in the mid-'70s for Robert Redford to play kind of a nerd... You know, was kind of cool. And, well, not... and it's a nerd that goes to a pretty dark place. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of both ends of the spectrum. Um, for me, it's funny. So uh, I, don't think, I don't think I ever saw it. 
until you said you first time you saw it was the DVD. Well, I worked on that DVD, mm-hmm. and that's the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it and going, "Oh yeah, I've heard of this movie. I have some maybe I'd seen a little tiny piece of it. I don't know." Right. And then being blown away, going, "Oh my god, this is a really really good movie." And watched it probably seven or eight or nine times on that DVD job as as we did. And then I don't think I saw it since. Mm. So that's 20 years later (laughs) that I just watched it again a few nights ago. Mm. And what was so interesting was at the beginning, and we're going to talk about all this, all of the sharpness and tightness of its structure Mm -hmm. and the beautifulness of its craft. I remembered. I'm like, yeah, this is what I remembered. I didn't remember how fraught and complicated I was going to feel yeah. about what goes on in this movie. Yeah. Right. I had forgotten that. Yeah. And so so it, it delivered on all the stuff I remembered, and then it also provided all these surprises that I didn't expect yeah. because I hadn't seen it in a long time. Well, th- and this goes in the bin of things like uh, All the President's Men, right? Obviously, the Parallax yeah. View, Iger Sanction. There was all these... The conversation. The conversation. There was all these yeah. films that came out around this in the 70s, around this time, about really exploring this whole idea of a shadow conspiracy or a shadow government or what, what we see now called the deep state what we hear now right, right, yeah. in, in our lexicon now so it's 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 fascinating and i and i i look forward to films coming out like that now right. with everything that's happening in our political climate now because that was obviously spurred on by watergate exactly. spurred on by the disillusion of the flower power movement like falling apart and the 70s and all the movements like with the native americans and with women protesting more to have equal rights all the, all these things were happening and so it it kind of exposed that and the Art reflected that, which was great. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. So, yeah. so it starts off with a book, which is called Six Days of a Condor. <laughs> right. Uh, which, yeah, it's more time, is what yeah, you're which is like, and I think it is a very three days is better. Yeah. Uh, we don't have we don't got we don't have a week to tell this story. We got way, a weekend. There's all these rules about like numbers and like certain numbers are comedy numbers and certain numbers are yeah. six is a terrible number. They're very well. Pro- like, there is, is there is a power to prime numbers. I think mm. you know yeah. three, five, seven, yeah. eleven. 13. Right. I'll stop listing them, but there's a lot more. <laughs> sure, sure you can go through them. Um, uh, and and book, book came out in, in 74, and this movie's 75, so it's really fast wow. from the book to this movie coming out. And we start in this film with some really funky 70s music. Mm-hmm. All right, that brings me to Dave Grusin. So he's an interesting co- collaborator with, with Sydney because he works with him on practically everything. I mean, he worked with him on, like, the Yakuza. Like, he even recommended him on stuff. The Yakuza with Robert Mitchum? That's, yeah, that's Sidney Pollock, too. That's Dave Gruzin. I didn't know that was Sidney Pollock. And so he, he does the music on, like, Absence of Malice. He does right. it on Havana. He does it on The Firm. Um, and even he... Sidney even recommended him for films he produced, like that recount uh, thing that was on oh, HBO. Right. That's oh. a Sidney Pollock production that he almost directed, I guess. But... So, right, we get this... It is some funky 70s. The funny thing about Gruzin is, like, God love him. Like, this, what I love about your podcast, too, is it's a positive podcast. So we'll, right. keep, we'll keep it positive. But I think he always sort of changed with the times. But I also think, sadly, a lot of his music in all of Pollock's movies sound a little dated because they're always a little bit too much of the time. Yes. And because... In Absence of Malice, which is 81, there's just some stuff that almost feels like it's Rocky Three music sometimes. Mm. Like in a couple like, Paul Newman, now he's going to the store. You know what I mean? Where you're like, okay, <laughs> I got it. Like, we should be inspired now. You right, know? right. An interesting thing I thought while watching all this stuff with Pollock and seeing Gruzin and stuff is that there's also an interesting thing about when you work with the same people all the time and you sometimes mix it up because... Sidney used this guy for his composer for almost like, I don't know, seven or eight films in a row. Mm. Then when he finally, when he does Out of Africa, he 
is using John Barry's score as a temp track when he's editing. John Barry's the guy who did all the James Bond um, stuff. And I guess he kind of falls in love with the John Barry stuff to the degree that he finally goes to John Barry rather than Gruzin. That Out of Africa score is really beautiful. And John Barry wins an Oscar for that score. And Sydney finally wins an Oscar. So it's kind of funny that, like, Out of Africa, except for Redford, is one of those times where he kind of didn't bring all the same guys back. And it Mm. seemed to have been the, the special thing that kind of got Sydney over the edge to finally get Best Picture best director all that kind of stuff all those guys are like dragging him down (laughs) (laughs) um so as we get our funky music we're immediately introduced to this uh this place of work where we're seeing books and research and people are talking about things that we don't understand and it's a really good mysterious kind of opening like what is this place i think one of the great things about this movie and watching all these movies again it made me realize this is something that pollock does really good he is a master of setting up his world in the first five to ten minutes, which yeah. any movie has to do. Mm-hmm. Tootsie, one of the oh, best yeah. goddamn first ten minutes of a movie. We get so much information about Dustin Hoffman in that time, like the kind of actor he is, the relationship yeah. he has with Bill Murray, with Terry Garr, like why he's such a frustrating guy. to. Work. We get that he's not only a, a tremendous actor, but that he's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like We get everything. The Firm has another great... Those first 10 minutes, we're getting well, and Tom Cruise's this Cruise's is really whole... hard to do. I mean, this is yeah. tough. T- I mean, you know, like from the screenwriting point to everything, it's like, how do we compress time and get all the information we need? And what we establish, one of the things I really love about this opening is that it establishes it as such a normal place. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like an ordinary place of work. We're seeing what the guys actually do. We're seeing the books. The computers right. are scanning the books. But it's important to remember, and this is even true in the font they use, what we're actually watching for 1975 is super high tech. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like, to now, to us, it looks quaint. Like, there's just these mechanical things, moving stuff they're talking about. Hey, can I get a few minutes on the computer? Because right. they all have to share computer time and stuff. Yeah. But it's, like, super high tech. And the font is even, you know, like... The that three, is a it's, very computery font. I, very, I remember yeah. learning how to draw that font on my notebook in the late 70s. Because <laughs> like, that was the cool sci-fi font, right. you know? Um, and we get... Uh, I love the shot of Robert Redford on that scooter heading to work. It's so fun, and he he shows up. Right, he's got the toque, the, like yeah, he's Canadian got a, yeah. toque, and uh, and there's some guy that's in a car that's you know, set, and, and this is one of the things the movie does really well is just setting the tension, yeah. just a little bit with these little details. Robert Redford shows up, and it is a very different character for him, as you say. It's nerdy. He's smart. He's uh, uh, kind of overly involved in everything. He's a little bit. Uh, he's got a sense of humor. He's a little jokey. He doesn't take things too seriously. It's a lot of fun watching him walk into this space. Yeah, but he's but he's also questioned because yeah, that guy comes up and he's like, "You didn't follow the proper channels. Right. You did this kind of stuff." So we get already, like you said, the first ten minutes of this film introduces us so concretely to the Robert Redford character. Right? He's intelligent. He's smart. He's so intelligent and smart that he does not follow. He doesn't feel like he has to follow the rules. Right? We yeah. immediately Which already said up the fact that he will break rules as he goes along through the no, film. No, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Like the fact that he goes out the other way, right. that he has all these little different protocol things, that he's not a guy that's obsessed with doing everything by the book, right. even though he loves books. Yeah. Um, Which is great. <laughs> and then in the setup, it's great too, is that we get just a little bit, those six characters are all real people. Yep. And yeah. just a few exchanges yep. of lines and stuff. The security guard, hey, he's not doing it right. The, you know, the lady constantly smoking. With like, a gun in the drawer. Yeah, right, that's a key detail. But it's like, yeah. oh, why she got a gun in the drawer? What is this place? And right. the office romance, like interracial romance in 1975, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. like not something we saw a lot after he just came Still off of don't. being with Mia yeah. Farrow, you know, in Great Gatsby the year before. Uh, you know, it's right. like, and now it's like, oh, wait, he's 
is he dating an Asian woman? Well, and they don't put know? any they don't put any stuff on it. You know what I mean? Like right. they, they don't explain it. We don't know exactly what the relationship is. We just kind of show it and we sort of move on. It's, yeah, it's it, it's really done well. And then and we continue to have these little details of something's going on. We see a we see this van pull up. Mm. We go out. He goes out because there's kids messing with his scooter. And you have this moment of wait, something you keep that's feeling such a great something, thing yeah. too because he goes like, what's on your mind? You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not, he doesn't come out there as a bully. He's not confrontational. He seems a little bit troubled by it. But, you know, like, yeah. and then they just run off. But I just, I love that line. Like, what, what's on your mind? Like, it's such a right. strange, non confrontational Even a little line. thing, like, the, a, a man puts an umbrella in a garbage can. And all of these things are sort of like, something's happening. Mm-hmm. You don't know what. And then uh, Redford is, like, going to have to go out to get some lunch. And he, again, violating the rules, yep. goes out through some back exit. Right, because he figured out it takes 30 seconds off the travel time. And it yeah. saves him from getting wet in the rain right. a little bit more. And we know this This is a key thing, right. is that, oh, they don't know that he left. Right. Whoever these people are with the list. He goes over to this diner. That's a really it's a great scene in the diner. Mm-hmm. I'm building up a great collection of rejection slips. Yeah, I know the feeling. I always wanted to be a Scoffier. Well, maybe it's not too late. You know, Van Gogh was 30 before he started to paint. No kidding. There's no mayonnaise on Dr. Lapp. On the other hand, Mozart was three when he started to play the piano, and he was composing at six. Fast started. Probably better. I don't know. Van Gogh never sold a painting in a whole lifetime. Mozart died a pauper. What am I, then? You own public library? Hey, that's a very bright man. It's very educational. That's why I come in here. Come in here to get sick, just like everybody else. Hey, come on. Hey, no butter on Ray's sandwich. He gets very panicky about butter. Total save the cat stuff in terms of like he keeps doing stuff that both reinforces his character that yeah. he's a little bit of a raw lawbreaker, but that he's also just a really good person that yeah. cares about people. Yeah. You know, and, and, and smart and funny and kind of engaged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in come the bad guys. Well, also incredibly analytical, right? Because yeah. the saving the thirty seconds, he helps them out at the beginning with the like he helps them like figure right. that what what they can't seem to figure out he figures out for them exactly. Yeah, yeah the ice bullet. They're, str- yeah, exactly. they're yeah. struggling with it, and then yeah. he just he gets it in like twenty seconds. Exactly. You know? Right. And then he, what he says to the kids, I think, makes sense, too, because he's like, what's on your mind? It's not stop doing it. It's, I want to know what is making you think, leading you to this conclusion that you should be doing this at this no. moment. Right? Yeah. It's about analyze. So already we're laying the groundwork and believable exchanges with these people that he's going to that he has this kind of processing brain. Right. And what's great is the little moments you get with these characters lets us feel their deaths powerfully, which is what we're about to get into. Yeah, here. Right. Because As he's even selling it when he's at the restaurant saying like, "Hey, Dr. Lapp, he's he, yeah. he's very very touchy about the mustard, exactly. you know, whatever." Yeah, where you're yeah. like, "Oh, he cares about these guys." He's humanizing you know? them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little it's all the little details. Yeah. And in come the professionals and they just wipe <sighs> us out. And it's and I was thinking about what makes this sequence so scary. Mm. And and uh, and it's a strange analogy, but it reminds me in a strange way of Jaws. And this is why is that part of what makes Jaws so scary when you're sitting on the beach is that it seems so normal. Yeah. This completely abnormal thing is happening to things that look very familiar. Yeah. And this group of people that are just at work seems very like no. ordinary people at work and the scary guys come in and, and I and the other thought I had was like part of what makes professional killers like these guys are so scary is there is no time. There's no mm-hmm. ramp up right. to you're in trouble in right. which you might be able to defend yourself. It's like, "Oh, I'm already dead." Yeah. And there's no, pl- I mean, the, the woman is killed first oh. and she, it's almost a Python-esque moment where she just falls back in the chair, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and then the security guard starts to kind of run and go for the door. But I think 
Another thing about this, and it's really interesting, this is why it's probably my favorite Pollock score with this guy. There's no score in this scene, it's, and yeah, there's very, very little score in this yeah. movie, but we constantly hear the whirring sound of the, of the computers the computer, almost yeah. the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's just extra chilling and makes it extraordinary, which is, makes it part of what I think it's so creepy is everyone's just doing their job, it's happening at their job, and you hear the machine still going. Yeah. I also think playing into that the watergate thing is the fact that one of the guys dresses up as a mailman oh yeah you know so that's yeah, sort of yeah. like look we here's Good a guy point. who's disguising himself as part of the most trusted part of our government yeah. and you know you can't trust him and then if, i mean the most important thing you yeah, with the bad guys coming in is max von sedow max von sedow now I, I mean, one thing that Paul is so good at is casting. Mm. And what I love, too, is that he's, I think he's self-aware as a caster. Like, he's not just casting people for the role, but he's bringing, he brings their history to it. And I think Cedow is so great. That's a good point. It's such great casting on two levels. It's contrast casting, because Cedow, you know, 10 years before this played Jesus. Yeah. You know, but... 15 years or almost 20 years before this he plays that knight in the seventh seal that plays chess with death and i think in a way he it's like he's death in Mm. this movie sure you know what i mean so he almost symbolizes death in this movie and there's something really interesting about getting the guy that kind of you know has come to i don't know embody death in a way with that that connection to the seventh seal you know cedo's great and here fun fact by the way uh my ipad autocorrects max von cedow as max von shadow (laughs) <laughs> which I think is kind of a cool name. Yeah. Um, so they clear out. Redford comes back. He's got his lunch. And the door is open for yeah. some reason. And he comes in and it is, he does a great job. And, the re- really, and that's a really tough, I'm mean, John, that's yeah. some of the toughest acting to do is oh, yeah. acting like when you're discovering something that is, you know, my wife's cheating, you know, whatever right. that thing right. is like. To play that is a really difficult thing to do. Well, also because you have to escalate it as you discover the different people and you have to give those people a history in right. your mind so that when you're watching them, when you're discovering them dead, there is all of this. Thing. And then you're piling on as you go further and further up the building. He's seeing more and more people. Like Everyone is dead. Yeah. Right? Which is why it leads to that incredible phone conversation. Well, I don't know if we're going to get to that just yet, but like yeah. uh, the, 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 the frustration in his voice when, when uh, homie's like, you know, give me your... Uh, designation what's your designation he's just like god damn it and he just loses it and I love that because that's building he yeah. knows he's a perfect he has to hold it on together but it's it's this kind of emotion from someone who's not used to expressing emotion in in uh, in controlled bursts right. and, and this is the thing he doesn't yeah. panic right but you can feel the panic yes. and you see the pa- you right. see the because he's analyzing it right yeah. exactly and even the moment with his girlfriend we think this is his girlfriend yeah, yeah. it's small and it's tender and it's real but he knows I gotta get out of here yeah. it's, right and, and you know little details by the way like and, that cigarette and, uh, by the way her death I mean that's oh yeah because everyone else basically yeah. just gets clobbered the one guy kind of runs away and when she you know she they give her d- deservedly the full realization that this is her death and then she you know I won't scream it's like I, you know and then there we even kind of see the weird, strange honor that Jobert has. Yeah. You know, you know it's like... Jobert is the Max von Sydow Exactly. Yes. Yeah, you know, I know. But then meanwhile, creepy post office guy is creeping over on yeah. the left to get it so that he doesn't have the window angle. Right. You know, and then she doesn't scream. Nope. You know, I mean... No, so- it's a sad death. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game 
Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So uh, uh, Redford puts out the cigarette that was still burning on the receptionist. Which is, I love that. I mean, A, I love that it's still burning. That's such a great thing. But then the fact that he, again, you know. He remembers to grab his gun, to grab her gun. Uh, this is something my wife pointed out. Does not think about going out the back way. Well, right. it's interesting. I've thought about that. He doesn't, but it, he's already come in the front way. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So he figures, look, I, if... I'm assuming he, I've already been seen coming in. So there's no point going out the back way because if, you know, let, or, or, I mean, he's also panicking yeah. too, but he basically, mm -hmm. he's already come in that way. So there isn't the thought of makes know. a choice to not take his scooter, which yeah. is interesting. And again, and this is what we're going to see from this character. This guy's smart. Yeah. We know that he was smart at the beginning. And while he is panicked now, we are going to see those wheels start to turn. You know, they grind a little bit at first and then turn faster and faster yeah. until we see the actions of a really smart guy in a genuinely scary situation. Mm -hmm. right. he's, constantly, he's constantly smart in the moment. Right. He's constantly, and you as a viewer going, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? But you're constantly seeing those wheels turning. Exactly. Which, and, right. and it plays out. It bears out. Well, his right. decisions bear out as the film goes along. And one yeah. of the things that this movie does so well is make you distrust the world with him. Yes. Is that there's a, there's a woman coming with a baby carriage. Oh, yeah. And, right. and, and there's this moment of like, she, maybe she's a killer. Maybe everyone is a killer. And you feel that with him. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a kind of feeling I think we don't do as much in movies anymore because we're so addicted to action. Right. Yeah. And action is the antithesis of this moment, which is the fear comes before the action. And uh, so he, he goes off, he runs. Yeah, there's an enormous amount of anticipatory tension in this right. movie, yeah, you know, yeah. where it's like... Well, because what this movie is, is really kind of exposing a scary world underneath our world. Yeah. Right. Um, so he gets to make this phone call, as you mentioned before. Yeah. He calls into the Major, and... Great uh, character. It's, it's a great sequence. Yeah. 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 This is a Major. This is Joe Turner. Listen, identification? What? Identification. Uh, my name is Turner. I work for you. Now listen. Identify yourself. Uh, well, I don't... What is your designation? Uh, Condor. Section 9, Department 17. The section's been hit. What level? What level? Level of damage. Everybody. Dr. Lapp, Janice, Ray, Harold. Harold was in the... Uh, uh... Are you in a company line? No, no, I'm in a phone booth. I'm, I'm just a block away. I'm in the street. You're in violation of secure communication procedures, Condor. Listen, you son of a bitch. I'm telling you, I came back with lunch and it was raining and the whole house was murdered. Everybody is dead. Right. 
Has the incident been discovered by anyone outside the company? I don't... I don't know. I don't think so. Are you damaged? Damaged? No. Are you armed? I don't... I have Mrs... Uh, I don't... can't remember her code name. Nightingale. She was afraid of being raped. She kept a gun. I've got the gun. Identify the armament. It's a 45 automatic. Will you guys bring me in, please? I'm not a field agent. I just read books. Leave the area. All right, well... What, do I come into headquarters now? Negative. Find a secure location. As you said, as he's processing, it's like, you know, go somewhere, someone you know, where it's like, well, who's left? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like literally, like, all of my, my girlfriend and all my coworkers <laughs> are now dead. Like, where am I supposed to go? You well, know? I like when he says, uh, what's the level or what level? And he's like, they're all dead. Yeah. What level? Yeah. What level yeah, is they're all, all dead? Yeah, <laughs> he's really not happy with all the jargon yeah. that the major is throwing at him. In that know? moment, right? Right. And I love the shot. Pollock puts the camera in such a great place. Right. Because we're not with the major. We're watching the right. major fully and we're seeing the technology around him and we're seeing the microphone out and all this and then then we get the small close-ups mm-hmm. but like from the initially from the call i like that we're at a distance because that's how he feels well and just you know? the detail that he's in a wheelchair yes yeah is so great and this is you know movies are made on details mm-hmm. i know it's a thing i say over and over and over again but but this is yeah. such a great one because you go oh that's interesting yeah. um and you see redford realize at first like why can't i just talk to you like a person and it's like oh no no i have to I'm Condor, and this is what it is. Right. And it's like, oh, I'm going to have to follow these rules. I, yeah. I got her. I don't remember. Uh, Nightingale. You yeah, know, as yeah. he's like, I, like they taught me all this stuff on my first day. Yeah. And we've never used it since, you know. And he slowly gets himself out of control, and it ends up they're not going to bring him in. Yeah. Right. They need him to stay out for two hours, go to another location. Don't go to your apartment. Go somewhere else. He's just like, where should I go? <laughs> and then I love the... Don't hang up the phone. Just drop it and walk right, away. There is something super creepy about that. Like, even now, yeah, it's just like, you know. And I can't, still can't, I was thinking, why would they want that? Are they worried the phone's traced? Or right. What are they? But the, sh- the the moment of him thinking about it and the shot, he walks away and the camera slowly comes down. It's and terrific. We see that. It's just a great I moment. Also, yeah. I mean, again, in watching all the Pollock stuff again, especially when he does movies in 235, he really is a good shooter. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he picks really good DPs, too. Um, but... It's like he he really enjoyed doing that stuff with him. the the irony is that I guess he literally sued some Scandinavian like TV company for running this show in Pan and Scan. He oh, was so it's ups- the first lawsuit on this ever. Exactly, yeah. and then and which he won, I believe. But then he w- became so frustrated with the Pan and Scan factor that after Tootsie, he didn't shoot any. He shot all of his movies in one eight five, and I don't think he went back to to two to two three five until his last movie until the interpreter. Oh, okay. And by then, and then he was mad that he hadn't done it on out of Africa and some of these other ones, because he realized that, you know, once DVD and laser disc and all this stuff came around, he realized it, it sort of got preserved, but right. he sort of purposely made, it's like, hey, everything's going to TV. I'm tired of them moving my shit around, you know? So he, he went to the smaller format and yeah. I don't think the movies in the smaller format look as nice as this is one of, it is one of the great lucky things about today yeah. is the death of pan and scan. Because, man, it's yeah. a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> so now we have the CIA cleanup crew heading over to right. uh, to check out if they're really, if, if what Condor says is true. Yeah. Intercut with Redford. Going to the Guggenheim. Going to the Guggenheim. <laughs> trying to figure out places to go. He, he has to go to a smart place. He still can't just, like, you know, go to a, like, he doesn't go to a dirty movie theater, right. you know, in Times right. Square. It's like, no, nah, he goes to the Guggenheim. <laughs> oh, when I think this is another place where great casting comes in. So this is where we get to meet Cliff Robertson. Yeah. Right. And... Again, Cliff Robertson is JFK. Right. Right? I yeah. mean, so that's just another bit of great Pollock casting because it's like 
if America looks at Cliff Robertson in 1975, they just see everything that's right about America and the government, right. you know? Well, what I would say about that is they see both. It's because what's interesting about what he does in this part is he has to walk this line for the whole movie where yeah. we don't actually know exactly what's going on no, in his head. It's right. true. And it's what's true. interesting is that in 1975, he, he represents early 1960s America. Right. Yeah. And so, well, on, on one hand, it's like, this is everything that's right with America. It also represents who we might not trust. Exactly. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And so it's like this, both of these things are in this character who we think at least seems to be trying to help yeah. Condor. But it's hard to know. Well, that's what was so great about when those guys made Winter Soldier and they were trying to do a yes. callback to these films. And yeah. so then they actually got Redford to participate. And right. Redford has now, he had become the Cliff Robertson. Right. And then to take it to that next level where they just full on had him be bad. You know, you're like, oh, you know, wheels within wheels. It was a great twist. I love that in, in, in Winter Soldier. But Cliff Roberts is also a great casting choice because he brings the kind of, he brings that weight to the yeah, part that totally. you need yeah. and that, that you want to believe him, you want to trust him. So therefore, when he does betray him, he does kind of turn on him, you are like even more devastated because you want, like you said, no, he played the president, but he also did Charlie. People played, forget Charlie. He oh, yeah. said one of the first right. uh, portrayals of a, of a mentally handicapped person, and he, I think he won the Oscar for that, too. So I, I think, think so. or got nominated yeah, at yeah. least. But I remember reading that book and then watching the movie, and, and there, it was painfully amazing. Oh, that, 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 by there's the way, a reason that why short they, story, yeah. that is like, that made me cry more than anything. I read it in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> like, that messed me up so much. Well, not right. I mean, that, the, the casting it's like that's where you're using it to your advantage with yeah. that baggage when it's good baggage like like Sam Raimi using him as Uncle Ben right so just just when you think about Cliff Robertson getting killed stopping a robbery you're like <laughs> no you know, it's like, a right. really good point that I don't yeah. think we've talked about very much is you're right is it's not just that actor in that role it's that actor and our history with that actor over time I think him and Glenn Ford have are in just yeah. the, those, that twosome has a separate box so yeah, think together about Glenn Ford's in two scenes in Superman. Yeah. And if yeah. I start thinking about that scene too much, I will get choked up. Like, the second he so... grabs his arm, it's Cry City. Yeah. It's, it's tears for me. He's Every so time good. he grabs his arm in Superman the movie, I'm like, oh, no. Well, yeah. that's why. And it's interesting about like that makes me think about like Henry Fonda and Once Upon yeah. a Time in the West where like he yeah. was really uncomfortable about it. And I think there was the thing where he did not – he wanted to put in contacts. Yeah. You know, because he felt everyone was so connected to him as the like the blue eyed you know symbol of America. Right. But then I think Leone says, like, "No, that you got to." You... But Can you I, imagine? To me, I, I actually I always thought that this was a thing that made it made Road to Perdition harder mm. than it needed to be. Was okay. that Tom Hanks does a brilliant performance in that movie, but he's working against everything, mm -hmm. and so. Even though we appreciate it, I think in some ways that film might have been better served by a Russell Crowe or someone that we already just bring the this is a scary guy mm -hmm. baggage to. I think Tom earned it, but right. sometimes that can well, be the thing. Casting where... against type, it's always a risk. It's yeah. always yeah. going to yeah. be a gamble of like, is this going to, even with a really great actor like yeah. Tom Hanks. Yeah. So uh, we see some other people in the CIA who go like, oh, we got to get me on a plane to New York right away. Yep. Uh, Redford goes and checks out, which probably isn't a very smart thing. The seventh person who didn't come into work that day. Right. Not only does he find him dead, but just as he's checking him out, two other guys come in. Right. And it's a little bit of a close call of Redford mm -hmm. getting away one of the voices that we're hearing there's all this great voiceover stuff and we're seeing all this stuff of like they're running it out of World Trade Center which is rough to watch it right. really is and, yeah. and especially those shots where you're like oh only the World Trade Center is that high right. like some of those out the window shots but I'm almost positive that we hear Dabney Coleman's voice as one Ooh. of those guys <laughs> and I bring it up because Dabney Coleman weirdly enough is in the first three movies that Sidney Pollock ever did oh like 
they must have been buddies or something. And then obviously he's in Tootsie. And I yeah. guess Dabney Coleman was supposed to play the agent in Tootsie before. Pollock did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah basically Hoffman insisted that it be Pollock and not be. But so, and that definitely isn't going along with, you know, Pollock just using his buddies, whatever. But I'm like, right. I'm almost positive that that is Dabney <laughs> Coleman's voice. That's really funny. Be. Well, now, 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 okay, cinephiles out there, I think you need to do some internet yeah. research <laughs> and see if you could find out the answer to that. But I love this sequence, how he gets away, Steve, what you brought up, because he's not Jason Bourne. No. He's not no. Jason Bourne. He's not this kind of CIA-trained operative. He has to rely on his wits. He has to rely on a little bit of luck in certain moments and outwitting these guys. Because if these guys were that intelligent, they wouldn't be just you know assassins or just killers they'd be higher up in the chain mm. so he has a way of other than uh, jobert obviously but like everyone else comes a little more sure. thuggy like mm-hmm. you know and so Definitely. he's able to outsmart them in that way and that works to his advantage in numerous times and this is one of those times so uh now it's almost it's time to have this second call and reference yeah. gotten it a little bit more under control at this moment he goes to make the second call and he's on the phone now with cliff robertson this is condor Deputy Director Higgins, New York Center. I'm controlling now, Condor. Where are you? How come I need a code name and you don't? And Cliff Robertson says, okay, we're going to bring you in, and you're going to go to this alley behind this hotel, and suddenly you see Redford is not trusting him. Yeah. One hour from now at exactly 1530, I want you to enter that alley from the 73rd Street side. Will you be there? The head of your department just came here from D.C. He's going to bring you home. I've never met him. Don't worry. He's studying your photos now. I don't know you either. Because we're thinking, oh, of course, look, this is this is what the movie would have been if it had been made just five, six years ago. He right. would have come in and yeah. it would have been a different story. Because the CIA are the good guys. Yeah, and you're right. hearing Chris, Cliff Robertson's telling you and stuff. Because they brought in Wick, I think is, is the character's Wick. name, that's Wick, the head yeah. of his department. and But then he's like, I don't know him. And then, right, then you see him have that same realization. Wait. I don't know you either. Yeah. Like, right. why do I have to prove to you? You have to prove to me. Wait, too. Yeah. How come I have yeah. to use my code name and yeah. you use your name? Like, <laughs> exactly. wait, like, how do I know that you guys aren't just the guys? And of course, yeah. he's right to be suspicious because one of the guys. He's know, definitely right to be suspicious. Yeah. And the solution is we're going to get this friend of yours. All right, Turner. We'll bring along a familiar face, somebody you know. Who's left? Got a friend in statistics named Sam Barber. Right. You know, which again is a mo- creepy moment where they go, we know that you're friends with this guy. In yeah. statistics. Yeah. Which they've set up. I mean, in the first scene where he, he gets a kiss from his girlfriend, yeah. it's like we're having dinner at Sam and I forget, the, you know, the, the wife, you know, and they just, it just, it just comes in. They don't, yeah. they don't put a lantern on it at all. Yeah. You know, um, but it's there, you know, they set it up. They set that dinner up. And so, so Redford goes, okay, if Sam comes, it's going to be okay. And then we see Sam getting ready in like the armory or whatever. He's got a bulletproof vest put on mm. and he's with this guy Wicks, mm-hmm. uh, who doesn't take a bulletproof vest, but does take a 45. And there's one moment in this scene that is fascinating, which is Sam is saying, oh yeah, I've known him forever. Me and my wife, I guess, have known him forever. Yeah. How long have you known Condor? Joey. I knew him before he was a bird, even. We went to CCNY. My wife, May, too. Uh-huh. She have a condor's girl? Here you go, Mr. Wicks. But the fact that he either A, already had the information, or B, was just, he's just Poking one of those we- yeah. weaselly guys that's probing for that information. You know, like It's a weird moment, and I think it creates you feeling, up to this point, you're like, oh, okay, so he's going to go in, and this is going to be okay. Right. And at that moment, I kind of go, wait a minute. Wait, what's, what's that about? Yeah. And, and, his, and Sam does give him the tiniest hint of a look. You yeah. know, yeah. like of, but wow. what, there is another thing in it that they, again, don't paint a lantern on at all. He asked for a forty-five. Yep. 
Now, they don't make any kind of thing about it, but we know they've already gone out of their way to have the major has asked him what armament he yeah, has. And yeah. so he asked for the same kind of gun that... Oh, um, right. You know, so right. He, I didn't so think it's like, what that. kind of gun? And then he just says, a co- so casually, you got a forty-five. Like, he literally yeah. just throws it away. They don't move in on it. There's no cut. There's no anything extra. But it's like... You're right. That's a, I hadn't thought about that. That's well, but, a great, but, great but, point. They, they put, there is a little bit of sauce put on the moment you just described. They want us to notice yeah. it. But the, having watched it a few times, you realize like, oh, the forty-five thing's in there too, but they don't even put right. anything on it. You know? <laughs> now we head off to this alleyway, and we have, and it's very tense. We have Sam and this guy Wicks are waiting, and we see that uh, Robert Redford is waiting somewhere else. And yeah. how are we going to go? And then Wicks does this very strange thing, which is to stack two garbage cans. And then right, and Sam's not an operative, so he's like, I don't even really understand what to right. make of this. I work in statistics, and again, no score. And we're just hearing this distant caroling or mm-hmm. something. And right. this is what I love is that someone told me that like Quentin Tarantino runs this movie and Die Hard as Christmas movies because this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> sure. It happens. And the lack of music again in these action scenes are it, it has such a heightened effect because you're just hearing atmosphere. You're hearing this distant yeah. singing and you're like, you know, uh, that's this is I think it's an amazing scene again, considering that it's not. It's the opposite of, like, say, if we see a preview for something like Atomic Blondes that has incredible mm. choreography. It looks right. amazing. The cutting. The, I mean, this is just a guy walking forward in an alley slowly and the camera creeping along with him and stuff. But it's so tense. Well, and this is it's kind of the thing I was saying before is that the action sequences turns the tension down on a certain level because when you see beautiful choreography, and I love beautiful choreography, mm-hmm. but I look at that and I go, that's not real. Mm. That's not that's not me. That's not the real world. Right. Where whereas I feel like Condor, it's John kind of. I mean, I <laughs> a little bit. Stuff. But yes, I sure, it's sure. not me or you. Is that I feel like Redford? <laughs> how would I feel? What would I do in this situation? And because it's because it feels very real. He's moving yeah. into this alleyway. It's very scary. He sees his friend Sam. The other guy is suddenly hiding, and then the other guy just comes out and starts shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when he realizes well, no, he's the other been guy set comes up. out, makes the big sound. Oh, he makes, yeah, yeah. He so that, over the that garbage distracts cans. Sam, and then you know they're looking because he's like, "No, come on, Joey, come on!" You know, like right. come down, and then right, he makes a big sound that distracts Sam, and then he shoots at Redford. Redford's like, "What the?" You know, he dives right. for cover. Right, it, he's got a silencer on it too, and then you know, and then Sam again, he is not hip to what's going on. He's like, "No, no, look." He keeps trying to tell Wicks, this is him. It's Joey. It's him. You know, like, you're not, he's not a bad guy. Like, the poor guy, to the moment, till he gets shot, he does not realize (laughs) what's what's going on. Redford wounds Wicks, and then Wicks turns and shoots right at the base of the neck above that uh, bulletproof vest, Sam. Yeah. And that's it for Sam. Yep. And Redford runs. Poor Sam. Um, and, And now the world has become really scary because... The lifeline was, I'm calling the CIA, right. and they're going to bring me in. Right. The CIA yeah. sent a guy who's trying to kill me, and this moment of sort of, oh. Something horrible has happened in the world, but the world has a remedy to deal with the horrible thing, right. Right. and I'm going to be okay. You know, kind of like, oh, there's been a horrible hurricane in, I don't know, say, New Orleans, you right. know, and now... But there's a whole structure set up to come save everybody. It's a crazy right? analogy you're reaching for, but I. Oh, you're correct. Like, oh, wait, I guess not so much, you know? Well, yeah. and, and, well and, it's, and it's worse than that because the thing that was the remedy 
it just tried to kill me. Yeah. Right. So now, yeah. what is there? But this is a. But this is what once again what it is symbolizing. What this film symbolizes the exploration of the destruction of these. Uh, we Trust. About, yeah, but like these foundations that we'd had since the forties, fifties, right. and sixties. Right. Institutional. Right. These institutions that we had thought protected us. We had thought took care of us. And I think it's the birth of conspiracy theory too. Is the late sixties, seventies, like sure. really the birth of this idea of these movements of idea believing in this kind of stuff. Right. You know, and you see this come like Star Chamber is in the eighties. That is also another exploration. Not a great as great of a movie, but it's also an exploration of this possibility of this un, this shadow government constantly right. working underneath. You know, and we'll get to the ending, but I love that ending scene. And this, all this stuff that occurs leads to that exchange between Robert uh, Redford and Cliff, Cliff Robertson, Robertson at the yeah, end. Absolutely. And so, to me, this is a great moment too, because now he's like, I don't know where where I stand or where I go. The one lifeline I had has been cut. Like everything right. around me has died right. in one form or another. Now, how do I reconstruct my world? Something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he runs. He runs into the store, and there we see right. Faye Dunaway. Yeah. And by the way, I it's. I, Faye Dunaway is a really interesting actress. This, to me, might be the the most sort of natural and soft of the characters. Because I think of her in Network or in Chinatown or Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. They're these really intense people. No, it's it's a great point. I was thinking about it. And it's, right, Bonnie and Clyde's kind of what puts her on the map. She does yep. Thomas Crown Affair, a bunch of other different stuff. And yes. then she's coming... She's coming out of Chinatown and going to Network. This mm-hmm. is the film right. in between oh, those okay. two films. And... Right, it's such a soft. It's such a character. I mean, such it's a, a real, real sort of. It's a person. really interesting. It's not something you see Faye play. No, no and right? also, I mean, there's shades of gray in her character, in mm-hmm. Redford's character, in their relationship. Yep. I mean, and I actually, I think that's another very fair thing to say. I think Sidney Pollock has a very mature view of relationships yeah. between men and women. I think he's, I think he's like. Not like a frustrated romantic. The interesting thing is he stayed with his wife his entire life. Like he wasn't, he didn't have a bunch of wives and Mm -hmm. I don't know if he had a, you know, we wouldn't know if he had a bunch of affairs or whatever, but he stayed with the same woman his whole life. But like things rarely work out for men and women in Sidney Pollock films. Like they're, they're Mm. usually very star crossed aspect to their affairs. And very often they have affair, you know, there's, there's. Men cheating on you know like it's it's very it's a very grown up approach to sexuality mm-hmm. and and star starcross is a really good way to say it and yeah. that's certainly true here very much because yeah. it starts with him kidnapping her yeah right and and, and she he started the relationship he started the movie in a relationship from yeah, what we can tell yeah, yeah. and she's in a relationship too right, so right. they're both you know I, I mean I I guess you can't cheat on someone that just died but it's like practically like you well you yeah. know you cheat on the memory well yeah, yeah. especially if it's only three days for God's sake yeah. yeah exactly so he he grabs her <laughs> yeah he I mean, puts her... six days of the condor it was more forgivable <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why they changed the title days. the body's at least cold by then yeah <laughs> Um, so he grabs her, forces her into her car, which is an awesome Bronco. Yeah. Like, I think. Right. And, and it's uh, a great thing if he overhears her name because they're calling in for the credit right. card yeah. back, back in the old days. And then it's like, Kathy, you know, and then she turns yeah. and then, you know. And, and and this is, you know, he kidnaps her. He has a gun to her. Yep. He forces her to go it back to the place. It is a kidnapping, yep. and, and she is terrified. And what I kept keep expecting from Redford's character that he does not do. Make her feel better. Is make her feel better. Right. He does not. He keeps it scary. He doesn't say, "Look, I'm really a good guy. You're gonna don't worry. Fun. I'm don't not going to hurt you. Don't worry. Right. I'm not doesn't do any of that. I'm not. I just yeah. Throughout, and it is genuinely scary. And this mm-hmm. is where the movie becomes like, ah, yeah, because you really like Redford and yeah. you really care about him. And his treatment of Faye Dunaway is like, 
Ooh, yeah. How, and I understand why. It's not sadistic. No, he. But he. He's not. He's not such a good guy that he, he goes out survive. of his way to. Tr- yeah. Yes, he's not allowing her to participate in the situation. He's forcing her to part. Like he's not going. Hey, this is happening to me. Help me. He's saying you're going to help me, which right. is yeah. the difference, right? And even when he gets back to the apartment, ties her up. Like he ties her up. Like yeah. that's yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't. I don't know if you could get away with that in 2017. I don't know. Well, this is what's you know something we talk about over and over again on the yeah. show shifting, is shifting. Is understanding the movie at the time yes. and, and then our perspective on it today. And yep. this is definitely one where that takes place. Yep. While he's going off with her in the car, we go back to the CIA and we have the big meeting of the big guns, including the biggest of our big guns, John Houseman. Yeah. That's awesome. You gotta love John Houseman. <laughs> now, again, playing to the strain. So, John Houseman produced uh, This Property is Condemned, the Natalie Wood Robert Redford film oh, okay. that, that was Sydney's second directorial hmm. effort. I have no idea how they connect, but for some reason he produced that film and then he used them in mm-hmm. this movie. But again, I mean, the weight of John Houseman with Cliff Robertson, you're definitely yeah. feeling like, well, this group of people must be the good guys, you know, the, the people right. we can trust. And I think know. he was coming off of Paper Chase. Right. Is this com- after Paper Chase? Well, I think so. I and, think the movie, yeah. Yeah, and and so, and this everything about it, you know, and obviously, you know, Steve and I know as massive Orson Welles fans, how John Houseman produced a bunch of Orson Welles' stuff and had been his partner for a number of years through his conversion into Hollywood and what have you, you know, and they had a terrible, acrimonious breakup. Right. But they, but he is, he was always, Always a guy who kept going forward as an actor and a producer mm-hmm. consistently throughout the decades. Yeah, and you talk about someone who brings a certain veritas yes, yes. to a role. Just the, his whole way of speaking. There yeah. is nobody like John Houseman. Right. No, it's incredible. And what's, yeah. what's so fascinating at this moment? We've just had the shootout in the alley, and now it's being reported back to all these CIA guys. And as you're, because in our mind. Okay, maybe that Wicks guy was a bad guy, but the CIA are still the good guys who are going to bring him in. They yeah. still want to bring him in, right? And then as you listen to them talk, you go. Oh, wait, they think he did it. The question was, Mr. Higgins, is he qualified with a handgun? No handgun, sir. M1 rifle and carbine. Evidently, it was sheer luck. Or else. Yes? Or else what, Mr. Higgins? Miss Condor isn't the man his file says he is. Then where did he learn evasive moves? He reads. He reads. What the hell does that mean? It means, sir, that he reads everything. Well, he does seem rather more interesting than just another of our reader researchers. For example, has he gone into business for himself? Was he turned around? Did someone operate him? Is he homosexual? Broke? Vulnerable? Could he be a soldier of fortune? Did he arrange the hit? There's actually only one moment where they begin to, as like professionals, entertain like the one, like. Maybe we're not, you know, all the ways that this looks on the surface is that he, that, you know, Condor is the one that's a problem, yeah. you know, like, and then un- and there's literally like a, unless it could be, and then like, I think that there's a drift off and the scene ends or, or like someone calls. So you're like, oh, they never even got to go down <laughs> yes. that path. You know, like someone stopped them from exploring that. But yeah. Is he a homosexual? <laughs> is it, you know, yeah. has he got, you know, I mean, like they just start l- listing off all the reasons that he maybe could have well, been, you know, has he been turned? And yeah. it does make sense. All these people got killed. 
And then when they sent, ostensibly, the good guys, he killed them both. Or he right. shot, yeah. shot his friend. Everyone yeah. that Condor knows is dying. So what's right. in common? Condor. And I'd, I'd like to know what homosexuality played in whether well, he was... Well, back then it was but, a much bigger deal in well, terms of... of or it's, it's so it was a very common way, I think, that... Of turning um, people. In, in Spycraft, uh, it was yeah. like if some, if you knew someone was gay, then you, you, know, you had something on them. And then that was a way for you to manipulate them within Understood. the world of intelligence, okay. I think. All right. So we go back to Faye's apartment, and still, Robert Redford is not cool with her. I told you I had a friend. 15 and a half, 34. I dig 15 and a half, 34s. What size are you? What are you, a clown? I'm scared. So am I. What are you scared for? You've got the gun. Yes. And and she is, you could see, and she, Faye Dunaway, again, but in this really soft way that I don't mm -hmm. think we've seen from her, is really scared and trying to keep it together. And you see the wheels turning in her head of like, is this a bad guy who's going to rape me? Is right. this, what is yeah. this? Trying to well, figure and it I out. Love, he plays this thing, and this is a hard thing to play too. He's just so fraught, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, from how exhausting this experience has been. I just love the fact that he realizes, and again, he knows his greatest weapon is his brain, and he is so tired and burnt out from the ad constant adrenaline. He's like, I just need to sleep. This you know? moment is and, kind of amazing. Yeah. Because uh, also, too, I mean, that's such a human thing. Like, when do we ever see, like, you know, like, say in the. You know, in the next decade, when all heroes became superhuman right. in their white tank tops and could, I mean, or it's it's kind of what wasn't there at the beginning, right? I mean, what we love so much about Die Hard is how human Bruce Willis yeah. is, and then Bruce Willis unfortunately becomes a superhuman. He, yeah, he turns in his human card to become an action hero. You know, but why he was so great in that movie, and this is that same thing of like, wait, wait a minute, guys. I know we're in the middle of a spy thriller here, but I really need to take a nap. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that, it's you know, very real. You have to imagine it's the real. people in the studio would be like, um, we're not so sure about this Redford taking a nap <laughs> thing in the fifth reel. But then, you know? but then where it goes is this amazing place, which is he forces her to lie down with yes. him, has his arm around her, holding her hand behind her back. Lie down against the wall. This arm behind you. And keep it. Now you listen to me. I am tired. I've got to close my eyes for a while. I can't think straight. If you try and move or climb off the bed, I'll know it. I'll feel it. And I promise you I'll hurt you. Couldn't you let me stay in the other room? I believe what you told me. No, you don't. And he's he is really scary in that. Like, yeah. and if you move, I'll know. Like, you know, he is not making her feel better at all. At, at all. That point. And it is this. We were in this. We were completely with this guy. Yeah. And now we're like, oh my god, he's doing this horrible thing to this nice Faye Dunaway person, right, right. and it's really terrible. And this is a thing that does not happen after the seventies, right? You know what right, I mean? Yeah. Where we're going to do this with a character and just let you kind of sit in this uncomfortableness. On of a it. quick right. tangential note, I did this scene in acting class once, just because I was such a big fan of it, like <laughs> fifteen years ago. But um, it, yeah, because it's just it's such a great scene. I mean, mm -hmm. he's in such a messed up place. She's literally just trying to like fight for her life every moment. Yep. But what I love it, it's starting in even in this scene when she's so scared, her quirky sense of humor is coming out in a few different yeah. little lines, you yeah. know, and yeah. and that continues throughout. And again, I think that's such an interesting thing. A as a character, and B something. It's what 
is great about it, I mean, why it's such a great role for Redford, and it's such a great, interesting role for Dunaway. I don't know if she ever got to play as as human a character yeah. in a way, you know, like. Well, I think, and that's why you. Uh, that's why it's inspired casting, right? Because she already has this credibility, bring. So you know, she she can bring this kind of uh, unsettling uh, approach to the character, or a very strong approach to the character. But she does. She has a softness, and the softness. It's one of the. It's one. It's one of my favorite Faye Dunaway. And I am not a person who gravitates to Faye Dunaway films. I'm not network, whatever. I can only see her. I can see it once. I've never seen Bonnie and Clyde, and so it's like it's one of those. She she's not an actress that I gravitate to naturally. Mm-hmm. But in this film, because there are levels and complexity, in my opinion, that I can gravitate to and understand, I enjoy her very much in this performance, and because she ends up turning the tables as this thing goes along. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so we see C. Dow is now meeting with lo- looks like one of the CIA guys mm-hmm. having some kind of co- conversation in D.C. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things he says that I like is he says, "Well, the problem with this Condor guy is he's not a professional because professionals yeah. are predictable." And and it's funny. There's something uh, I know you've done. You've done some martial arts. Uh, Steve Jones has done some martial arts. I've done martial arts for a long mm-hmm. time. And one of the things you learn doing martial arts is the two most dangerous people on the mat are white belts and brown belts. Uh, and white belts are the most dangerous because you don't know what they're going to do. They're very totally unpredictable. And brown belts are dangerous because they know just enough to hurt you, but not really enough to control themselves. And they're very excited about what they know. Right. Um, and so the professionals are predictable. I totally get it. Like a white belt will punch you in the face. You're just not like, what's happening here? No, yeah, it's a good point. Um, and then uh, Redford wakes up. And they're waiting for the news. He notices her photographs. And again, now you start to see... But it's so funny. Once he gets his nap... He, it, yeah. he is totally humanized. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he starts checking out, and again, and I think maybe this is something about sending him to the Guggenheim. He's such an he's so analytical. He's such an observer. Yeah. He really digs her photography, and it's I don't know who took those pictures, but it is great photography. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and then the news report comes on, and, it, and all girls like to have their photography dug. I mean, that just that helps <laughs> on the whole thing. You know, like. It, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. Love notes from Steve Jones. <laughs> Coming whenever soon I, to a podcast. Whenever theater. I kidnap a woman, I always make sure that I compliment her photography. <laughs> a news report comes on. It doesn't sound right. It's not what happened. And suddenly he realizes he needs to call Sam's wife, whose name I don't remember. Right. And, and finally goes, I have to go there. But what's he going to do with Faye? He's going to tie her up. Yeah. Again, this is troubling. This really upsetting particularly when you're a guy that's going out possibly to be killed yeah. if you, and the woman that you just tied up i mean she could die no yeah. i mean yeah. again like every you know he's just avoided death twice everyone he know has been killed then his uh, then his best friend is killed you know i mean yeah. so he is literally running for his life and now he is not being as nice to this woman as he has the power that he could be being nicer to her right. but he also i think feels that his life is very much at stake. So, but he is making the calculated, shitty decision to basically, yep. incor- in, you know, make her life be at stake too. Isn't this the sequence where she's he, she says, "I don't think I want to get to know you that well either," or is that later on? I think so. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Well, she's showing I, the pictures. I, she and, says so many great, um, right, nice things too. Of just like I love when she's tying him up. She just calls him a bully, yeah, and there's yeah. something so like childlike and sort of sad about that too. Yeah. But it's but very real, like because. Now, once, he, once he's woken up, he's seeming more and more like a real guy. Yeah. So then it's like, look, you don't have to tie me up. Like, can't we be reasonable yeah. about this? You seem like a reasonable person, you know. But once well, again, that's why you cast her, because she already has the spine. So when she's playing it uh, in moments that are a little more softer, right. tender. It's true. It, it's true. It, you believe it. If you'd, yeah. if you'd cast someone that was softer or had more of a reputation of 
being that, then you yeah. don't get. She's so strong and has been so strong that when she goes to these softer areas, we don't see her as weak. Yeah, we just see her as yeah. human. Exactly. That's you a know? great. That's yeah. a great way to put it. Well, and the thing too is like you know we talked about a whole bunch of movies where we had to look at them and go, "Ooh, I'm a little uncomfortable with this yeah. in terms of race or gender or sex or things like that." And and in this one, I find fundamentally not that way. I mean, there are things I'm uncomfortable. It's with. It's tricky to navigate, but, but it's not quite but the same. This movie yeah. is intentionally making you uncomfortable. Right. Yes. It's as opposed to in, back in the day, we would have just accepted this thing, mm -hmm. and now we look at it and go, "Ooh, I well, don't like it." Apparently, in that the scene we described particularly. In or in these first two scenes, I think I read someplace behind the scenes that is like Dunaway was a big as a lot of you know as anyone is was a mm -hmm. huge Redford fan and was like really wanted to work with him and so apparently was really not quite bringing the level of fear in some of the different like she was kind of being a little bit too easy yeah you know for going down the path that they have her character go because on a certain level she was just a big Redford fan and willing right. to go down that path. So then I guess on a lot of her coverage and a lot of different stuff, like Pollock had them shoot some of the stuff where he was kind of saying the lines and doing some of the lines mm. and kind of being the heavy that I guess Redford was not, Redford was doing it in his own performances, right. but to get more of that fear out of, out of her, out of her, he, I think, you know, in some of her coverage, he ended up doing the stuff to really basically scare the hell out of her. Wow. You know? So she's tied up. Redford goes back to the apartment of Sam's and this scene is really powerful because mm. Again, opens up the door. No gruesome music and a lot of atmospheric music, you know, sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's Sam's wife, and she doesn't know. Yeah. And Redford's reaction, you know, he gets this long hug, and you see kind of the dawning fear yeah. on her. And I love the fact and that she makes that joke about, like, hey, let's, you know, like, let, let's, right. let's, but hey, if it's our, well, let's get drunk. Well, it'll be like, seems like old times, you know, whatever, like yeah. they clearly have been mm -hmm. together. But you're going to say the shot when he looks at the four empty yeah. places. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, and you don't, you kind of have forgotten how little time has passed. Right. Oh, that was just this morning. They were supposed to be here tonight. That's a right. great point. That's it's a great just, point. We're yeah. only at one day of the yeah. condor at this point. <laughs> right. Um, and so. Do they uh, even need all three? I mean, it's more like two and a half, really. So, so uh, he tells her she's got to go somewhere safe. Yeah. He's trying to leave. And who do we find in the elevator? Oh, Max von Sydow. Well, such a great reveal, man. And then the whole elevator, they both... It's, it's, a, it's, like, a cat, it's, it's like a cat and mouse yep. chase in an elevator, yep. you know, like... Yeah. When he tries to get off the elevator and he corrects him, yeah. oh, man, just brilliant. Yeah, he tries to leave on the second floor. Yeah. No, no, oh, I've made that mistake, too. <laughs> yeah, and he chats him, oh, kids, I suppose they're the same in any place, you know? Yeah. And, then we, and then we go, we get off in the lobby, <laughs> and Redford talks to the... He does kind of a shitty thing again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he basically gets, he, he uses the kids as human cover. Yeah. You know, like, hey, guys, want to help me make some money? Sure, man, I'll make some, help you with some extra money. And he basically like, hey, how about a, a bunch of teenagers will just surround me? And yeah. hopefully I'm thinking you won't want to shoot through a bunch of kids. <laughs> well, the, alternative, the goal is to stay alive. The <laughs> yeah, goal exactly. Is to, you got to do what you got to do. There's something bigger going on that he wants to find out. So he's going to do whatever yeah, he can Yeah, no, I mean, it. it's, yeah. it, it's like... But it also makes sense because he's such an analytical guy. In my and this is maybe something I'm bringing to it. He does not see humans in the same way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he, the fact that he thinks he can kidnap, the fact that he thinks he can tie this woman, the fact that he use these it's teenagers. Possible. There's this right, and even when he sees the deaths, he doesn't weep. Right there, at right, no there's point a little does bit he of cry of anybody. There's, there's unsettled. Right. But he doesn't cry at all. And so, and and the fact that he's even almost pseudo ready to move on with Faye Dunaway is a little unsettling. That quickly after the death as well. So it's to him, it's a process. Everything's a processor. You hmm. know. And so to, to me, it's believable what he does. I don't actually. I 
uh, chastise him for it because this is who he is. He analyzes situations, sees the best option, and makes the movement. You know, which which before all this happened made him sort of a fun, yes, of course, charming guy. Right? Yes. Yeah, when the stakes weren't quite so high, yeah. right? You know, right? Or uh, maybe just playing the the numbers too, where he's like, all right, you know. The chances of me being killed with the four of them are significantly lower, and their right. chances of being hurt are lower if I go out. You know, what I mean, like, and he yeah. just he picked the least bad option of all of the bad options he had on his you know Terminator pull down menu. You <laughs> so, know. so he goes back to Faye's apartment. He unties her. Yeah, she gets a phone call from the boyfriend who's yes. waiting her for a skiing. Who is? No, who is it? Sydney Pollock. Yeah. Oh, that's Sydney Pollock. And oh, Sidney Pollock does a lot. He he does until you know Hoffman's you know ropes him back into the world of acting twenty years after giving it up. He does a lot of you know voiceovers and mm-hmm. and or just like walks in in a scene or does a thing. And then after Tootsie, then he sort of started to become a semi professional actor in addition to all the other hats that he wore. But well, yeah, but I think that's part of because it's interesting. It's a long voiceover part, and yeah. we hear a lot of what he has to say. And honestly, it's a terrific performance. Mm-hmm. Like. But you, yeah, it is Sidney Pollock. I never, just, I've never not believed him in anything I've seen him in. He's I great. Think he's he's terrific. Even in Eyes Wide Shut, which isn't a great movie, his sequence with Tom Cruise over the pool table at the near the end of the movie is like unsettling as hell. Yeah, because that voice of his too. You know, like when he's yelling at Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie is great when they're in the diner or whatever. And then well, I think lunch it's that Meisner thing too, where thing. it's my, like. Like, and this is definitely something that I took, I studied with a lot of different people, and one of the things I appreciated most that I got from Meisner is kind of this idea of, like, you don't speak it unless it's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like he has this way of, and I get that's yeah. why Hoffman, like, harassed, you know, Hoffman was like, look, if it's Dabney, I'm getting it from a peer. Right. For me to, he, you know, he was so, Hoffman was so method, for me to believe that the only way for me to get a part is to dress up like a woman, it has to come from you. It has to come from this authority. If you tell me that I can't work anymore, I'll believe it, you know? Um, and that's, I love that part. I mean, yeah. we could talk, Tootsie's a whole other night, but. That would be, a, yes, it is a whole other night. Because <laughs> yeah. tonight, we are sitting with Faye Dunaway and Robert Redford <laughs> as they look at the photographs. Yeah. And this is the most vulnerable I've ever seen Faye Dunaway mm-hmm. in a role. Sometimes, I take a picture that isn't like me, but I took it so it is like me. It has to be. I put those pictures away. I'd like to see those pictures. We don't know each other that well. Do you know anybody that well? I don't think I want to know you very well. I don't think you're going to live much longer. Well, I may surprise you. Anyway, you're not telling the truth. What do you mean? You'd rather be with somebody who's not going to live much longer. At least somebody who would be on his way. I'm not... You take pictures. Beautiful pictures. But of empty streets. And trees with no leaves. November. Why haven't you asked me to untie your hands? How much do you want? And then, and it's, it's this is where I do go. This is a little weird today. Is where a little Stockholm, yeah, you know, little Stockholm syndrome. Absolutely, is that 
you go, oh, are they going to kiss? Yeah. Oh, they are. Oh, they're having sex. And it's intercut with the photographs and beautifully done. And it is intentionally fraught with some stuff. But right. looking at it today, it's even more so. It's true. But th- though I do think... It's not like it's believable in the context of how they've set it up and yeah, built I it agree. up. You know, I mean, they built it sort of step by step. And his performance, too, when he's analyzing the f- pictures, I think, is, you know, it's like not winter, November, you mm. know, like where he. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that, like she says, I could use eyes like that. Like his he is weirdly enough, he's kidnapped this woman, but mm-hmm. he truly sees her and he has this really penetrating Absolutely. way of seeing everything, yeah. you know. But- so it's this strange thing of like, wait, on some level. You know, you really get the impression of Sidney Pollock seeming kind of like this rough and tough guy. You know, like she's kind of with the guy that, A, you sound, it seems like their relationship's in distress. Yeah. Like this is a save the relationship trip, right. you know, mm. that's, that she's missing. That's, that, you kind of feel like that's what's going on. And so then it's this sense of like, how weird is this star crossed thing where a guy who's kidnapped me sees me more clearly than the right. guy in my life, you know? Well, and also where the film is set up is, is real smart to let that happen too, because A, you don't spend a lot of time with Robert Rifford and his girlfriend. It's only a couple of scenes. Right. right. And then you don't, and you only hear this boyfriend on voiceover. And once again, you're like you just said, Steve, you're presented a relationship in distress. And those of us who are adults, we've been in these situations. Sometimes we, act on these impulses because in our minds we're already done with the relationship and so there's it's, and in this case what you, there's also like there's that end of the world sense too right. yeah. like Absolutely. For he's, him, lo- he's lost everything he's right. lost everyone in his life except, right. you know except for one, you know one you know ex from 20 years ago he doesn't know if he's going to live till tomorrow right. and she kind of has that sense too so I think there's also a little bit of like rules don't apply the, the nuclear bombs are falling type thing too, right but I know? think but I think it bleeds into what you said earlier Steve uh, when you said that he understood complexity of male female relationships That's adult true. mature relationships it's not always black and white it well, can and be that great so he doesn't approach the them with a lot of judgment. Yes. You know, he approaches that like men and women, he deals with a lot of the realities yeah. of the complexities of how men and women deal with each yeah. other. True. Yeah. Next morning, Robert Redford gets up and now you really see the brain because yeah. you see him going through what happened in the alley, what happened yesterday, what are all the things that I've seen and trying to process them. And then Faye gets up and she seems a pretty different person. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I do. There's a great, like, you know, you talk in your sleep. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, your girlfriend's name. Who's that? And it's like, w- was she a volunteer or or was she a draftee yeah. like me? <laughs> it's a really funny line. Yes. I mean, like in terms of just the awkwardness of the whole. Absolutely. And then we cut over to the hospital where Wix has been. And this is a great murder because we're just out with the nurses. Yeah. There's, there's the, the heart rate monitor. It goes beep. And now, you know, oh, Jobert's been here. Yep. Back back to Faye Dunaway's apartment. Oh, there's a mailman with a package. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. You know? And, and it's, again, you see Redford's intelligence is he looks at the shoe. Something's not right. And now we get a, a fight scene. Right. He, yeah. He sees everything. Now, I actually think this is for 1975. This is a pretty great fight scene. Yeah. Like, it's, I don't love it so much. But. Well, I mean, I think it's a little awkward, but it's like it's broken up into, re- into real beats. There's real yeah. cause and effect. Mm-hmm. You know, Redford is doing the majority of his own stunts, which he loved to do. Apparently, an anecdote is that anytime R- Redford did his own stunt, he would make sure that the stuntman who would have done it got paid anyway because he mm. didn't want to be taking away stunt work from stuntmen. So, but he just sounds lo- like communism. <laughs> he just he just loved he loved doing stunt work. But I think yeah. if you haven't seen the Yakuza, I really recommend seeing that because I was amazed at how good that sword fight scene was for an American mm. directed movie in time, 1974. Yeah. You know, and I think 
I think he brought a little bit of that back to this scene. I mean, it's just two guys going at it in a, you know, in an apartment. But I think it, for 1975, I think it's a pretty decent fight scene, you know. So he manages to kill the mailman, finds a key, finds uh, a piece of paper. It's got a phone number on it, calls the phone number, discovers that it's CIA. Yeah. And this, again, is that, oh, that, that place that you thought you could go, the refuge is going to save you, they're trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now we got to go off. And this is this is like the turn where we go from I'm running to I'm going to fight back. Yeah. Well, or because in a sense, there's no place to run. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like all you can do is turn and fight, yeah. you know. And now face on board. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Redford's sex, got some magic skills. Sex does that. <laughs> Feel connected. <laughs> yeah. When you kidnap a woman and you compliment <laughs> You compliment her photography, <laughs> and you see her in a way that no one else sees her, and then you do a very proper lovemaking. Apparently, she will break into CIA like, headquarters you, for you. You have Boom. recruited her yes. at that point, more yes. or less. Wow. You know, it's, speaking of, because you know, in in Out of Sight, Steven Soderbergh, who's a huge fan of all things seventies, you know, has George Clooney and um, Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez, Lopez reference yeah. this movie and reference their thing. And do you think it's believable that they got together so much or not? But mm. what I think. You know, is unlike those characters in Out of Sight who sort of fall in love with each other, like you you know that this is not a relationship, that it's ever going to be a relationship. Like Mm -hmm. they they end up creating some sort of strange star cross connection and she decides to be helpful to him, you know, but it's never they're never going to end up together. You know what I mean? Like assuming he assuming Robert, I mean, there's no there's no six days of the condor because probably Robert Redford's character Maybe doesn't survive. Yeah, I don't we don't know. know. Yeah. Um, so so now Faye Dunaway uh, breaks into the CIA. It doesn't break into the CIA. She kind of lies her way into the CIA, gets a look at Higgins, marks him for Redford, follows him into a restaurant, sits down very confident. Mm-hmm. And she's really fun and charming yeah. in this moment. Says, this guy is waiting for you outside. Red, they go outside. Redford grabs him in the car and they kidnap Higgins. Yep. Um, Basically, at this point, Robert Redford is well on his way to becoming a professional kidnapper. Yeah. He's doing very well. He's pretty good at this one. And we get a conversation between Higgins and Redford, uh, like on the, you know, near the water, yeah. uh, going over what's really going on. Get me in, Higgins. What good would that do if you're right and they are inside? What good would it do to bring you in? What am I supposed to do? I'm sorry. You're sorry? Oh, I get it. You expect me to draw fire. Like one of those penny arcade bears that parades back and forth waiting for somebody. Somebody very good just to take another shot. And you're just going to hang around and pick him up before he does it? Or just after? I'm going to try and find out what's going on. I'm going to cross-check all those names. Nice talking to you, Higgins. No, wait a minute. Have a nice day. Where are you going? Where will I find you? I'll find you. Beautifully shot scene. And then at that point, you know, just to wax on how great looking Robert Redford is throughout this entire film. And he's in all these great little cool outfits that are not really quintessentially Redford. And it's sort of his geek, you know, with the the tie tucked into the sweater or whatever. But once he gets this peacoat from, you know, it sort of becomes this quintessential great spy look that he just rocks throughout the whole, you know, thing. And and I notice you've always had a nice dark peacoat. I'm sure that it. I'm sure that I I became attracted to peacoats at a certain <laughs> point because I saw Redford in this thing. I'm like, man, I want to look like Robert Redford. You sure. know, I don't have the hair, but I could have the peacoat. He does have nice hair, and 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 in this, uh, uh, Higgins confirms Cliff Robertson confirms that Max Fawcett worked for the company. Yeah, and there's this 
he fi- we find out that Wicks is dead, and there's just this moment where Redford very vulnerably says, "What am I supposed to do?" Right. You know, and we're still in this place of can I come back in yeah. or can I not? And then Cliff really just fucking kicks the table leg out from under him or whatever by just saying, like, what good would it do for you to come in now if this thing that you're proposing exists exists? Like, yeah. you're actually safer out there on your own that, you know, like, than to be inside, which is really so disturbing. What's his game here? Not Redford's. H- Higgins. Oh, What's Higgins' game? That, well, he... Right, and then Redford brings that up, right? right? It's like, maybe it's better for me to be the stalking horse for you guys to, you know, to flush out your bad guys. Yeah. Well, well I'm just a researcher, you know? Well, and we don't... I mean, this is the thing with Higgins. We don't get to know. Yeah. We don't... Uh, you know, because the whole time you're going... That Wait, is Higgins in on it? It is, it is a mustache. You know, is he in on it or not in it? Is he right. on Reverend's side or not? And you can interpret him either way throughout the whole movie. Well, that's, and there's a great line. They're so great at just suggesting, you know what I mean? Where yeah. um, So, uh, Redford, you know, he has his phone skills, so he steals a little phone thing. Right. He goes to a hardware store oh, to yeah. find out where the key came from, finds out it's from a Holiday Inn, yeah. go, and get somehow... You win the trade! You know, it's yeah. great, too. Like, it's like, how do you know so much? Oh, I read it in a book, you know? And we get, and this is so great about us. He's so smart and so capable. Gets on the on the switchboard, essentially, taps into Jobert's phone in yep. the Holiday Inn, records him calling someone. Thank God we have touchstone phones at this point. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess he could have recorded the click, 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 click of a, of a rotary phone. Um, then calls the CIA, gets them to decode what the touchstone phone is, calls a different number, gets them to find out what that number is, and now he knows where the bad guy is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's great spy stuff. Well, really it, fun. It's great. And I think it's such a fun celebration of smartness. And I think a really cool thing about Robert Redford in the 70s, it's interesting, is that it's like John Wayne could not have done any of this stuff. Right. You know what I mean? It's like. And Redford, I think, Redford is the movie star of the 1970s. And he sort of sums up, and he's everything that's good about the 70s male. Unfortunately, everyone... Rook is thinking about that. Everyone trying to, everyone trying to do that couldn't quite, but it's like, because he's sensitive, you know, he's smart, but he's always still masculine. You know what I mean? And he's very, he's liberal, you know, he fights for Native American. Like, he's sort of... He's not the biggest star in the 70s, by the way, box office-wise. No, No. well, he has a great run. Right right at this point in the middle, he's probably at his peak. But I don't know if he makes it throughout the whole 70s, but... Well, look, I love love Redford. Um, It's funny, because I I know Burt Reynolds, I think, has the longest run as the top box office guy in the 70s. And Eastwood's actually huge in terms of box office. It's true. But in terms of what you're saying... I think zeitgeist for the shift to what the 70s is kind of about i think redford definitely personifies that certain yeah. and i also think it's what made his shift to the 80s awkward mm-hmm. but then at the same time it's also he he so smartly in the 80s he became a director yeah. he started the sundance institute and he really didn't act for almost most of this the 80s except for out of africa and just a you know a, a couple, couple things, a couple yeah. films yeah. so he almost seems to sense the passing of the zeitgeist and he you know let it pass to Arguably Harrison Ford. You right. Know? Interesting. Um, so uh, he calls Higgins in. They try to trace the call. They can't do it. And now we see Redford's really, you know, taking control. Yeah. And we find out that the, the guy is Leonard Atwood. Uh, and he knows where Leonard Atwood lives. And he's heading off to that. And we get, get to a train station. And has a very nice little goodbye with Faye Dunaway. Yeah. What are you going to do there? See you, guy. More secrets. Like those pictures you hide. Yes. Someday I'd like to show them to you. 
if you live through this, you have a lot of very fine qualities. But what fine qualities? You have good eyes. Not kind, but they don't lie, and they don't look away much, and they don't miss anything. I could use eyes like that. And, and this is where, as you say, these are star-crossed lovers, and it is very clear, like, oh, yeah, this can't work. Right. There's no- well, and even she, like, I still think... Your, I mean, I think she even articulates yeah. that your odds of survival still at this yeah. point are extremely yeah. low. Like, I know. worry about her odds of survival, by They're the way. They're not great right. either. She yeah. is, He has tainted them. You yeah. know. Gotcha. And then we go back and there's this really kind of, after he gets off the phone with Higgins, we have Higgins and John Houseman, and they talk about the CIA. Houseman just has that like, why aren't you farther along in the company? You know, like there's a <laughs> moment where Cl- Cliff Robertson and him are along and he, he sort of lists some of, you know, Robertson's achievements or Higgins' achievements. And then it's kind of like, why aren't you farther along? And you kind of get the impression that it's maybe Higgins is actually a little bit too much of a good guy to mm-hmm. be farther along, you right. know? Maybe. But, and then there's that great line, too, of when he talks about, you know, Houseman talks about his bona fides, where he was in the Great War. I go even further back than that. Ten years after the Great War, as we used to call it, before we knew enough to number them. You miss that kind of action, sir? No. I miss that kind of clarity. I miss that kind of clarity. Yeah. You know, which is, no, I think, that's a great line. It's sort of speaking for everybody at yeah. that point, too, you know? Well, and in that discussion, we're in a very unclear circumstance. Yeah. We don't know who Condor is. We don't know why these people were killed. We don't know what role... Higgins and Wicks and well, we know what Wicks did. We don't know what how Houseman really feels about any of these things. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about that scene is we never get to know exactly. Like Houseman says something like, "You're comfortable with what we're about to do," but we don't get to know what exactly that is. Mm-hmm. What their intentions are? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it for going to help out Condor, or is it going to kill him? Right. And we don't really know. Yep. Condor shows up at some fancy house. It puts on some loud music. <laughs> right. Down comes this older well, and gentleman. And you know what's funny about that loud music? You know, that's like this very 70s funkadelic. The lyrics are, Because I got you just where I want you. And I want you just where I got you. you know, which definitely you know, plays into what's... And I don't know if that's just serendipitous or... No, nothing's in a movie. Nothing's in a movie. I tend to not to think yeah. so. You know. No, they picked that song. Yeah. I mean, that's that. Uh, and down comes this guy. And uh, Redford puts him in the chair. And it's in this moment, although he's asking me questions, the guy doesn't answer. And Redford figures out what it's all about, which is it's all about oil. What does operations care about a bunch of goddamn books? A book in Dutch. A book out of Venezuela. Mystery stories in Arabic. Wait, what the hell is so important about... Oil fields. Yep. Strangely enough, this still seems to be a thing. <laughs> right. And what's really scary about it is that, you know, they're talking about the CIA's plans to overthrow, invade, or or destabilize governments in the Middle East yeah. and in Venezuela, which is another interesting one, in order to claim their oil fields. And it's yeah. like, huh. Interesting. Yeah. Where have we heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely something that has been, has come up yeah. <laughs> since 1975. <laughs> 
Um, and just as he's figuring that out, who should walk in but our good friend Max von Sydow. Yeah. Don't turn for a moment. Put your thumb in front of the hammer. He's a scary villain. Yeah. And it's the calmness of him that right. makes him so scary. His charm. The dignity. Dignity. Of his yes. voice. And Sydow walks past Redford, goes stands right next to Atwood, and takes the gun and very, very unexpectedly yeah. shoots him in the head. Yeah. Makes it look like a suicide. And there's this moment where we think he's going to kill Redford. Yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't. No. And Redford's performance was great in that moment, too. It's like, wait, is this over? Is this not over? What's happening? I love the, yeah, the, the, the surprise. And then how he starts to question it. Yeah. Did you put your fingerprints or your hands on anything else besides? Right. And he's like, Reverend's like thinking on the spot, like, what the? I, you know, I don't, th- I don't know. I don't think so, blah, blah, blah. And he just calmly talks to him as he's cleaning up the scene because this is nothing new for him. Right. Well, right. And because I'm not here for you right now. Right. Right. But I love And when he says, are you coming back in? Did they brought you back in? They brought you back. The company brought you back just in. Just for this. Just, just for this. this. <laughs> you know? But I, I love, too, that like, when you first said that uh. about questioning, I realized. Again, Redford can't turn that brain off. Like, yeah. the smart play is just like be quiet and let him leave or whatever. But he's too interested in the yeah. guy. Like he's asking him questions about stuff, you know. And like even when he talks about his job later on, he's like, "This is a job. This is my job. I am good at my job." Like, there's yeah. no shame in what he does, and it's just very pure and simple. Even when Robert Redford's like questioning him about it, well, the fact is, what I do is not a bad occupation. Someone is always willing to pay. I would find it tiring. Oh, no. It's quite restful. It's almost peaceful. No need to believe in either side or any side. There is no cause. There's only yourself. The belief is in your own precision. Right. He has a co- He has a very clear code by which he has... Fi- you know, and that... In a, in a way, going freelance allowed him to have a cleaner code yeah. than when he was fighting for one side or the other side because it always seems like the stuff is shifting. And, yeah. You know, like when you're, oh, well, it's, if you're fighting for this guy, it's okay to do this really terrible stuff in the name of this. It's like, well, now he only does what feels comfortable to him in right. his code. Which is, so then it's so strange that, so, you know, Redford gets this by because it's a, well, look. I had a deal with the dead guy. Yeah. So now, you know, and death, you know, makes the deal. Now, someone else with a different code, maybe he would have had to, oh, well, hey, I made the deal. Even though the guy's dead, I still have to honor it. But right. in Joe Bear's world, if the guy's dead, that, you know, nullifies the code. Yeah. And I love, there's that, there's so many, that last scene between the two of them, that's a lot of why you do the movie if you're yeah. an actor to some degree. There's so many great lines in it. But one of them I love is when he's, Europe, you know, I think you'd be you, safer in Europe. And he's like, I was born in the United States, Chopin. Yeah. I miss it if I'm gone too long. There's like that, that still kind of sad, plaintive patriotism that we're in the 70s. I think that's this mm. thing, too, of like, you fuckers messed up our country. You know what I mean? Like, but I still love it and I still right. believe in it. You know, like, like he can't just abandon the U.S., even though at this point the U.S. has kind of abandoned him. You but know? do you think in that moment when he's talking about Europe that Chopin is offering him a job? Come work with me in Europe? <laughs> I think I think he's telling him this is where you can escape to because as a professional courtesy because you've escaped this far mm-hmm. you've gotten this far against someone like me. But is he saying be like you. me? You could be no, no, like no. me. I think he's saying you can escape. I think this is where you can escape. Well, I definitely I definitely think that you, yeah. John is right, but I think Steve's idea is a very interesting yeah. one, and I almost think if Condor like showed an interest, yes. I almost think Jobert would be like, sure, I'll I'll shit. Sure. You know, it's funny when he says Europe. This made me that. What's that great film? 
well, it's not great. It's a really good film. That uh, Clooney movie, The American. Yeah, you The know? American. Mm-hmm. I like that movie. You know, he starts in Sweden and then he ends up in Italy and stuff. But I was always laughing, thinking like, you know, wouldn't it always make the most sense if you're American to hide out someplace in America? Because <laughs> if you're if you're the only like say in Born Identity, yeah. but if you're the American in India or you know Wellington, New Zealand or whatever, like if you're not doing the accent, yeah. you know, like you stand out. You're good. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. And especially like George Clooney, like, oh, you're in a small town in Italy. Like, you know, the priests come in. You, you, you definitely. So it always seems like it would make sense of like, oh, you know, Steve, Steve's from Marin. Probably he should just like hide out in Bodega Bay. Like it's, just, you know, it's like, a nice place. <laughs> it's, you know, where it's like, where are you familiar? Where will, where will you not stand out? A place that you seem like you're only about 20 minutes away from. You yeah. Know? Well, so, the, I, I think Oliver Stone was influenced by this scene when he had that scene in JFK with Donald Sutherland coming mm. out and giving Costner that whole totally. vignette on the bench. Like I thought that, I think mm. this is his, his kind of like homage to Three Days of the Condor because it has that same kind of idea of a shadow. That's a yeah, really good you know, point. Very kind of calm yeah. explanation. I'm just a professional doing this thing. Right. He's wearing the trench coat, the hat. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. And he's yeah. trying to help him. Because he's telling him, go for it or don't. Right. You've got two choices. right? And I feel like uh, Joe Bear said the same thing to him. He's saying, you can go to Europe. If you stay here, that's, I don't know what's going to happen. That's, I gotta, just, that's a little thing. Joe Bear's outfit, like, there's really great costume design yes, in this film. It's very, it's very, And what's interesting, again, Bernie Pollock is Sidney Pollock's brother. Yeah. He wor- is in the wardrobe department on this, and he ended up going on to be the costume designer in a lot of mm. Pollock's movies and stuff. But I think, like, yeah, Jobert ha- has a real <laughs> outfit. Yes, you know what I mean? Like, but it becomes kind of a uniform. Redford does. Um, you know, Robertson's got, like, the next level of, yeah. like, what Redford's wearing. He's got the fur and, you know, like, he, the right. money and That's stuff. That's a great jacket, yeah. If Faye Dunaway's outfits are, are really cool, mm. they're understated compared to some of the other stuff that she's done. But right. it's like... But everyone's costumes, I think, are... It's just they're great little character mm-hmm. indicative stuff. Even the girlfriend at the beginning in her little yeah. you know, yellow shirt and the black pants and stuff. Everyone's got a great... you know, they tells do. a lot of story. So we have our final moment with uh, Jobert, which is... Oh, it's sort of Louis. This is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying. But there's this weird sort of nice, friendly conversation. Yeah. And then what do we do? We go find Higgins on the street, and Redford walks behind him with a gun, sends the the car away, and we're still at this moment yeah. of, is he going to go in? Well, What's because he going to do? Ca- the offering of the car literally, Jobert said, it would happen like this. It would happen this way. You may be walking. Maybe the first sunny day of the spring and a car will slow beside you and a door will open and someone you know maybe even trust will get out of the car and he will smile a becoming smile but he will leave open the door of the car and offer to give you a lift like yeah. he's actually yeah. warned him. Like someone will say, "Hey, come get in the car." So he's not going to get in a car right after that, you know? Right. Yeah. And he and he walks with him, and they have this great conversation. And there's this line in it that I just absolutely love, which is, "It seems like you think that not getting the caught in a lie is the same thing as telling the truth." Yeah. The interesting thing about this line, which is such a great line, this line appears in three of his movies for oh, some reason. Really? I think it's mentioned in Absence of Malice, and I think it's mentioned in The Interpreter, the final hmm. one. So I don't, obviously, this must be, I can't imagine that Pollock doesn't know it. Yeah. You know, on some level, he yeah. cl- it clearly must be a deeply held belief mm-hmm. on some level if it's literally like 
you know, hey, here's a message I believe in. I'm going to put it in three of my 20 films. But. This is my favorite scene in the movie. It's a great scene. Because it's just two actors at the top of their game having a conversation and then being honest about it. Do we have plans to invade the Middle East? Are you crazy? Am I? Look, Turner. Do we have plans? No. Absolutely not. We have games. That's all. We play games. What if? How many men? What would it take? Is there a cheaper way to destabilize a regime? That's what we're paid to do. Fact is, there was nothing wrong with the plan. Well, the plan was all right. The plan would have worked. Boy, what is it with you people? You think not getting caught in a lie is the same thing as telling the truth? No. It's simple economics. Today it's oil, right? In 10 or 15 years, food, plutonium, and maybe even sooner. Now, what do you think the people are going to want us to do then? Ask them. Not now. Then. Ask them when they're running out. Ask them when there's no heat in their homes and they're cold. Ask them when their engines stop. Ask them when people who've never known hunger start going hungry. You want to know something? They won't want us to ask them. They'll just want us to get it for them. We're thinking ahead, and, and, and you can almost accept the logic of Cliff Robertson because he's saying no one's going to give a fuck how we get them food or oil when they're running out, when they don't have It's a it. very reasonable right. argument yeah. for, I mean, and what I love is that they've, they've said, look, Cliff Robertson, you are a, as good a man as you know how to be in the choices that you've made in your right. life and what you're doing, and I want you to defend this position mm-hmm. honestly. Don't put any sauce on it right. like where you're making a judgment on the character. Your character believes in what he's doing. Right. He sometimes doesn't like what he what the things that happen in the name of doing this, but I think... He, they both articulate their points really, really well. Absolutely. Well, and this is sort of like a you can't handle the truth moment. It's like right. it's like he's saying, "Look, this is the real world. Yeah. This is what's That's happening." That's what's so shitty. What if they don't? What if they don't print it? That's the moment. Well, okay. So hold on. Let's 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 okay, get this. We got to set up that moment. <laughs> I, I skipped ahead a few steps. <laughs> yeah. Don't so, come already. Yes. So because we're because. <laughs> because Redford is in this trap, and throughout this whole movie, the question he's caught is, in a trap. Yeah. He can't go back. He can't look back. He, he, he can't. He can't walk out. No. Because how, how long lo- are we doing this? How long are we doing this? <laughs> lyrics. Sounds so, 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 like, look, I'm sleepy. All right, can we get to the end? Of so for the whole movie, there's been this decision of do I go in or do I not go in? Yeah. And in this scene, we're still in this moment, and going in doesn't seem like a good idea, and not going in doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. It seems like he's doomed either way, right. and he's walked along, and he says. They have the story now. And where are we standing? We're standing in front of the New York Times. And we realize that he has given the whole story to the press. And Higgins' reaction, which I love, is... Oh, you... You poor dumb son of a bitch. You've done more damage than you know. I hope so. That actually seems the most emotionally affected that Cliff Robertson has been in the entire film. Right. Is in that level of disappointment, you know. I don't know. There's a lot of emotions going on there. but well, I think that's why it's my favorite. I've worked at, you know, because I was in military intelligence for eight years in the Army. So for me, this whole scene has multiple levels going on, right? right. Because, A, they both do a great job defending each other's point of view 
for for the debate, right? Because Redford's from a place of being right, and I, I'm going to expose you, blah, 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 blah. But Cliff Robertson is saying, you stupid son of a bitch, you don't know the ramifications of what you're doing. Right. By undercutting this, just this establishment, you're going to disestablish, what do you call it? You're going to... Destabilize. Fucking, destabilize. You're going to destabilize the country. You yeah. could possibly destabilize the country. We have no idea. He and could get hundreds of agents killed. Exactly, we don't know. Exactly. And that's what he's saying to him. That's why he, it's the first time you see Cliff Robertson have this actual genuine moment of anger at this guy. Uh, and he says that to Robert Redford. He says, you stupid son of a bitch. And then he turns it on him. And it's... The Fucking beautiful. Because Robert Redford thinks he's walking away sanctimoniously like a left-wing liberal sanctimonious. I got you, <laughs> you conservative bad person. Right? But then he turns it around and says to him, how do you know they're going to print it? How do you know they're going to And it stopped. And I love Redford's reaction because it's subtle. It's not big. It's subtle. It's like, fuck, I hadn't thought of that. Shit. And, and then freeze great. frame. And freeze frame. And boom, we're done. And, and we're here that God bless you. Yeah, Mary, gentlemen, right. has been playing all that whole time. He's freeze framing the Salvation Army people. It's such a, it's, it, there's, it's something, it's, I think it's why it's part of this classic of yeah. these movies of this time because it's so ambiguous. And it's, but it's interesting. It shows this growth that we're going to head toward with the 80s of this kind of jingoistic, like, yeah. hey, it's all going to be okay. Because in the year before, in the parallax view, things do not end well. You know, I, right. I just I, I won't I won't spoil it, but <laughs> things don't end well. Yeah. And this movie, it's this super seventies ambiguity. And then next year, with all the president's men, things kind of do end well. In I mean, in that the good guys kind of win, mm -hmm. in that they out the bad guy and right. stuff. You know. Well, this is, and you said it just right. Is like I was thinking about this a lot. Is that, and then the seventy-seven is Star Wars. You know, yeah, everything's right. okay. <laughs> is the know. big, the big thing that differentiates this era in film is ambiguity. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to the eighties, when you get to Star Wars, there are good guys and they're bad guys, right. and we know who they are, and that's it. Well, At the end of this movie, you don't get to know. You don't. We first of all, we don't get to. I don't know if Higgins was in on it right. or was going to kill um, right. uh, Redford. That's the first thing I don't yeah. know. And then. I don't know if the New York Times is going to print this, and I don't know if that means that their control, that the CIA is going to stop them. Right. And then I don't know when he says, you dumb son of a bitch, you've done more than you know. I don't know what that means. Maybe this is going to really hurt all sorts of mm -hmm. people. And, and, and then we have this freeze frame. I don't know what's going to happen to Robert Redford. Right. You no. know? And then it's, and what's rough on the 70s, too, is that you know, this is that time where you got most of your credits in the beginning of the movie. So there's not a lot of credits before when you're still in that moment and then you're going you know, <laughs> to see the Technicolor symbol and you're out. You're like, right. oh, I don't even have five minutes of rolling credits to kind of get used to right. this feeling, you know? No. And even with the relationship with Faye Dunaway, yeah. there's a lot of ambiguity there, too. Yeah. Well, I think you, you, it's like somehow as we got to the end of the 70s and into the 80s, for whatever reason, right, that ambiguity was no longer acceptable. And what's it's the absence of malice, which comes out in 81, yeah. you know, it's Paul Newman, it's Sally Field. It's about journalistic ethics and all this stuff. And it literally ends with a deus ex machina of Wilford Brimley, who's never been in the entire film, comes in and basically just kind of he stands in for the U.S. Yeah. government Justice Department. And he kind of wags his finger at all the people that need to have their fingers wagged at makes our Paul Newman good guy. OK. Right. And. It, watching that film again, it was just sort of, it made me sad about, A, how far we've fallen in terms of journalistic ethics. Like, that's yeah. not even almost a thing that can be talked about in a giant quarter of our country. Yeah. But also just the fact that we're like, wow, even just in the six years between Three Days and Absence of Mouse, you moved, like, ambiguity was no longer a thing that, you know, like, was acceptable, you know? But what I love about the scene, too, is that it, it, it 
promotes the middle ground that there has there is there is the middle ground is where the reality is right sure. both sides defend their extreme points of views here but the middle ground is where it's supposed where we're, we operate best we're supposed to be better as a country of operating in the middle ground right and i love that you know i yeah. absolutely love that and for me you're left with the idea of how long is he going to stay alive for real? Like, I, I don't think he can I don't run think forever, you know? I don't know if he makes it to six days. Yeah. I, guess, <laughs> I, would have, I, I think I, it's six months of a condor or something like that. <laughs> he, I, he kidnaps another girl. She's not... I don't know what happened. I would have loved to have seen a possible sequel to this, like... Well, I think they're, they're developing a series, which I, oh, I, I heard, oh, okay. which I think is, is a smart idea if you kind of... And then I heard someone say, like, the smartest way to do it would be almost do it like 24, where ah. you you have it happen in a much shorter time frame, sure. you know, or something. Well, I think you could do it because, like, uh, like a conversation, like Enemy of the State is a, it essentially an unrecognized sequel to the conversation. Right. 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 It's Gene Hackman coming back in that well, kind and that, of Well, and so, so Spy Game is a bit of this, too, except yeah. it's almost like it's almost like if Cliff Robertson's character is, Ro- is Robert right. Redford, right, right, right. you know, since he... You know, you don't imagine him coming back in, but yeah. actually, you know, I mean, they he could come back in. You know, yeah. a year or two later, sure. they could bring him in if the regime changes or whatever. Replacing the director, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, John, yes. What are your f- final thoughts on Three Days of the Condor? I think this is a fantastic film to explore. I, it's not what I would watch all the time, but certainly every few years, it's a fun one to explore because no matter how far away we get from it, these arguments still apply. These ideas of, like Cliff Robertson says at the end, if it's not oil, it's going to be something else because it will be always something else and there will always be people who believe the way Cliff Robertson does, does is the way to function. By the way, I love the fact that he is reminiscent of the Cold War, right? That's what right. they talk about. Right. Versus Robert Redford's newer approach, right? It also symbolizes what was happening in the 60s and 70s, the idea of don't trust anyone over 30, right? It's all, and it still applies nowadays, you know, when people are too set in their ways from another time. They have a hard time transitioning into newer ways of doing things. And I think what this film does is highlight that and explore that. It does challenge you, too, with that relationship with Faye Dunaway. But I think what you're seeing here is Robert Redford basically in the prime of his career as an actor, 39 years old, really having all his tools available to him and using them effectively to convey multiple levels uh, uh, in scenes, complexities uh, within his own acting, within his own exchanges with characters on screen. And Max von Sydow, one of the, be- the no one talks about this guy as a villain as one of the best villains in the film. And when you see him, he is just fantastic. I think you can get the professional off this guy. I think there's a number of uh, sure. villains that come after this film that can be modeled on Joe Bear. And so, to me. All around, one of the best, uh, t- these types of 70s kind of questioning the government, questioning the CIA type films that has ever been made. And Sidney Pollack, it's just a master class in directing from beginning to end, I yeah. really think. Uh, that, that's, some, that's some professional final thoughts. I got to give you a shout out, John. Like, that's impressive. You're not, you've been, you are a professional. Well, that was no, some special final level thoughts. Sure you no, it was be- that was beautiful. I'm just, you know, we can cut that out, but it's like, that, that was some professional level final thoughts. I mean, I love this movie. I, I love it irrationally, you know, in the way that like, you, <laughs> the, in the way that you love like, like a guilty pleasure movie, mm. you know, like, like I love Hard Target. That is not a defensible movie, oh, but I love it. That's a fun little movie. It's true. Jean-Claude Van Damme. And and Wilfred Brown. Exactly. So I love this movie irrationally. You know what I mean? Like, I I have a man crush on Robert Redford. I'm Mm. comfortable saying, like, in my own comic that I'm working on, I base one of my character designs on on you know, like, you know, there's a guy that kind of looks like Kurt Russell that I actually want to talk to you about doing the voice for. Oh, there's there there's there's a character that kind of looks like Robert Redford. There's a character kind of looks like Peter O'Toole. Like, I kind of picked each of my favorite decade decade icons. You know, Mm -hmm. but. 
I love spy movies, and I'm a huge James Bond fan, and I love the fantasy spy stuff. But the real spy stuff, especially 70s spy stuff during the height of the Cold War. Now, there's no Russia in this movie or whatever, but I just think it's... There's like a... It's Sidney Pollack at the top of his game on the way up. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like when you're on the upward rise, it's going to culminate in him winning the Oscar on Out of Africa. It's, It's Robert Redford at probably his peak like he's he's 39 he's at the end of being a young man but he's mm-hmm. not an old guy you know and he's gonna go on to do some great stuff and then like out of africa is kind of his last on the way out before mm-hmm. he can't be a leading man in the same way he was mm-hmm. anymore so and they're two close friends making a great movie together when they're kind of at the height of their powers yeah. but they're using their powers for good we know about so many stories where either movie stars or 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 directors like overindulge or do all this kind of stuff. It's actually Pollock's first time. He's not listed, but he starts producing the movies with this one because he starts realizing how important of a, of a thing that is. And I just, I don't know, Jeremiah Johnson, like all these movies that these guys do together, just I have a soft spot for Faye Dunaway, Spies, Trenchcoats. Like it's kind of got it all. Max von Sydow. Mm. So the guy who wrote the, the screenplay, uh, he also worked on Batman's the original Batman sixty six, and he wrote the screenplay for Flash Gordon. Where oh, Max oh, really? Lucido wow! Is. So it's and he wrote the Parallax Views thing too. But so it's hmm. it's just a great combination of pieces that I love. You know, so I don't know. I have a soft spot for this movie. It, I think people do think of it as a minor classic, but for me, it's a major classic. Yeah, for for me, it, it's it's funny. Uh, first of all, on a filmmaking level. This is an extremely well-crafted movie. Mm-hmm. It is extremely intelligent. And it's so its attention to detail and its performances is so good. So just for watching a good spy thriller and watching this smart character of Condor figure his way through these problems, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and, but it's these other levels to the film that really make it something more. And, and the thing that I kept thinking about was that Anytime you have an organization, that organization might have some kind of goal. And, you know, whether it's we're trying to make a movie or trying to build a product or we're trying to protect intelligence in the United States. But one of the things that in order to achieve that goal, it has to protect its own survival. Mm. And so and sometimes the, the desire to protect the survival, that becomes all you're working for. And we see this in a lot of different places, including, I would say, political parties today. Mm-hmm. And certainly we're seeing the embattled intelligence communities mm. trying to protect themselves. And and it becomes very hard if you've ever been in the middle of trying to protect your survival to hold on to the actual values and reasons that you started in the first place. And all of the work that you're doing might supersede your own values because all you're doing is fighting for survival. In fact, you might reverse yourself right. and do things that you are morally reprehensible and work exactly exactly against your goal mm-hmm. in order to keep the thing alive that was supposed to achieve your goal. And you definitely see it not only with the CIA in this movie, but you see it with Robert Redford and his treatment of Faye Dunaway and some of the choices he makes are in order to survive, he starts doing things that he would never have done before. Right. And so that's something I was just thinking about a lot when I watched the film. And it's why this movie sort of resonates is f- untangling that puzzle of what is acceptable and at what point have we gone too far and right. we have become the enemy yeah. that we despise? And it's interesting that in some ways the clearest moral code in the film is the guy who abandons all of that fighting for the thing. You know, Jobert, who mm. he just has his own little morality that he feels totally okay with and clean with, even though he's a professional killer. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a morality devoid of what we would consider morality, but it works for him, yeah. <laughs> apparently. Mm-hmm. 
So that's what we think of Three Days with Condor. Of course, we would like to hear what you think. You can visit us on Facebook at The Cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Subscribe to us on Stitcher. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, leave a review. Does it sound like I'm ordering you what to do? It's because a little bit I am. That's the kind of... I feel this movie made me feel very bossy, wow. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and... <laughs> Just this movie, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, as John and I both laugh a little too. <laughs> um, so, and uh, by the time you hear this, we will have launched our Patreon page. Yes. Which is a great opportunity for you to support the show. There are a lot of different levels that you can subscribe. It definitely is going to help us keep going. And there are really, really great perks you get for subscribing to the show. So, if you want to become an official cinephile, <laughs> just go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, no dash. That's patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And as always, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter. John, where can they reach you? Oh, yeah, they can always reach me. You guys can always reach me at the Roca says R O C H A on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, you, you know, every uh, Friday at 10 a.m. on Collider Movie Talk. Uh, also, the Outlaw Nation podcast launched on the Schmoes No Plus podcast channel. Uh, you guys have been fantastic with those comments. So thanks so much for still listening uh, to the show. We have a lot of amazing guests coming through as well. And maybe by the time you hear this, then an announcement will have been made about the future of the top 10 show that's uh, been being discussed recently and the talks have been increasing in speed so i'm uh, so excited go, about that thank you I cannot the, wait I, we'll see what happens really missing it thank you um and steve can they reach you on the uh, social networks you can i am stephen b jones on instagram so come and check out. You can see, you're not going to hear me talk about movies or see me <laughs> acting, but you can see a lot of my professional drawing on Instagram. And there's some really beautiful artwork. You yeah. see great character designs. You see a lot of different uh, studies of, of film characters I've seen you put up. Mm. It's, it's a really fun Instagram to follow. So I highly recommend it. Thank did you. you. Did you draw Springload for Robots in Disguise? No, I don't think so. Okay, but you, Springload, you got to do voice. the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Okay. No, I yeah, if uh, I didn't get to draw Springload. Awesome. Um, so, Steve, thank you so much for yeah, coming on. Thanks, thanks guys. I'm really glad you recommended this film. I'm really glad you did all the research. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty, it saved me a little bit of time, and it was pretty impressive. Um, it was a lot of fun having you on. Yeah, and uh, I think that's it for this week. And we will see you next time on the Cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>